In this episode, we'll be doing TFAS 1936, 1933 to 1945. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. 1933. Story number one. Titans. Written by Maurice Stett. The Intergalactic Cooperative Defense League, commonly shortened to Incodel, was fairly young on the Universal stage. Created by the noble Karatla, the first race to discover polaric gravity interface travel. The League's choice of FTL method. Incodel was the primary state holding sovereignty over the Milky Way and Andromeda galaxies. With 730,000 systems and 2,316 member races with a quite literally uncountable population, mostly due to the 30% of races classifying as hive minds, Incodel is magnificent for age. This is the story of the first war they ever fought. Read closely. Incadel was famous on the Universal stage for a variety of goods, art, and technologies pioneered by the member races, along with a massive cultural export in the form of their ingenious system of government. With no small margin, the most numerous races were Karatla at 30%, the Zianata 23%, and the One Mind Karelti 15%. And with the exception of the Karelti, as they went through two generations of workers a week, this was in order of age. The Karatla were known for their scientific might, standing at a gargantuan average of 42 centimeters in height. The Zayantal were renowned artists, a respectable 35 centimeters on average. The Kuralti's largest worker form was around 7 centimeters in length, and they were the most efficient workforce known to date. But there remained rumors within the races of the universe, rumors of titans, aiding from fringe worlds in the greatest darkness. These titans were said to stand nearly two full meters tall, could withstand the harsh environments of terrestrial, rocky planets as opposed to the gas giant moons, and if word of mouth was to be believed, could lift up to 100 kilograms. Most dismissed these titans as propaganda, so that the big three could fend off dissent. The idea that any race with just ten of their members could lift a ton was simply preposterous. These rumors should have been a warning, though, for the Karnaxi Imperium. The Imperium had been rapidly expanding, nearly 100 galaxies under their fold, and Kudel remained a strategic target for a less advanced, though large, empire. Andromeda did not survive the assault. The passionate defense of the galaxy, a story for another day, perhaps. But the Imperium was not prepared for the next target. The general theme of the offense is best known by the following log. Opening log, Captain Zaijoncha of the 38th Star Brigade of the Karatla on the defense of Imperium. When I was initially assigned to the 38th, I was concerned. Our transport ship, which should have been around a kilometer long to support the brigade, was closer to a hundred kilometers at the beam. I had pondered the necessity of doing Sermu, unimaginably large. Why would we dedicate the resources, and for what possible reason would we create such a behemoth? Then I saw them. The Titans, or uh, humans as they called themselves, were truly something to behold. Mammals, humans were the only instance of a sapient species of megafauna, Earth being the only Gaia world in Incadel space. 
The Karatlan had long since solved natural mortality by the time their discovery, but their gargantuan size had afforded them long lives before then, and in them exists a majesty that's difficult to describe. In an effort to assimilate the Titans into my command, I assigned the eldest of them, Sergeant James William Dorr, to my personal command. He was 283 standard cycles old, 25 human years, which was apparently rather young for a human, but barely reaching mental maturity. On our first deployment, garrisoning the forward world Imperium, a brutal death world is not unlike Dorr's home, though only a class 2 as opposed to Earth Gaia's 13 designation. The gravity of 3.6 meters per second squared made most of the squad uncomfortable, but Sergeant Dorr laughed uproariously as he bounded across the plains when off duty. His very steps shaked the ground near us. Most of the battalion resented this. When the Imperium landed, the resentment died. The Imperium weapons did virtually nothing to Dorr's personal shields and armor. It took coordinated artillery strikes to break the shield, and it took thousands of rifles to cause any real damage. Dahl's rifle, a heavy coil repeater, had a similar effect on the enemy as one of our warship batteries would have. When Dahl ran out of ammo, he simply charged the enemy and punched through their cover. His mass and enhancement suit enough to crush even the strongest shields and armor. Enemy vehicles were crushed in his palms, entire emplacements flattened under his boot, and when he finally started to become overwhelmed, when they started to resort to orbital bombardment and our position became overrun, I assumed that we were doomed. But we were not. In an act of defiance against the guards, he told the entire battalion to cluster together, to grab onto each other tightly and fit inside his locker, a locker that could fit several of our group transports with ease. In the end, he simply lifted the locker with all of his comrades inside, left the now-damaged-beyond-repair enchantment suit behind, our remaining footstalls and his sword strung across his back. He ran, across fields, through forests, over the rivers and hills he ran. Forty kilometers ran that day, fifty the next. He just kept running. Eventually, he found a cave, one large enough for him to sleep, and he set up camp. When finally he rested, his battalion wept for him, for his saving them all. The next day, when he awoke, he asked us to stay at the cave and prepare a defense, and he went forth into the forest. Night after night, he'd return with wood and food, more than enough for us all. With the sheer amount of resources he could gather for us, we quickly created a settlement, then a fortress. Eventually, he started coming back with more and more groups of our soldiers he found across the world, being gone for days at a time when he did so and the others had similar stories of their humans, though many of theirs had died getting them to safety, not as well trained for the wilderness as Sergeant Dor. Under the support of a single man, we grew a resistance, and when the Imperium finally descended upon us, Dor made his last stand. In that final battle, Dor pulled aircraft down from the sky. His sword went through enemy assault lines like plasma through paper. His bare skin took every fire like it was merely an inconvenience. That battle lasted three days of him retreating to the trees. Three days of enemy suffering as Incadal reinforcements made their way to us. And the third day, though, disaster struck. The cave, our shelter, began to falter. The great cavern began to crumble. 
but Dor would not see us doomed. He stood in the cave as collapsed, taking the weight, allowing us time to leave as it crumbled around him. When I turned back to face him one last time, nearly 300 kilograms of rock already on his back, he saluted me and said his last words. It was an honor to serve. We had to leave Imperium. Every human soldier station had died in its defense. But we ended that battle with a kill ratio of 130,000 to one. One man for 130,000. My first son was named Zai Tar Dor in his honor. My good friend Tai Lok Far named her daughter Tai Far Warren in honor of Lieutenant Diana Warren, who single-handedly eliminated an Imperium fleet with a plasma rifle and a hastily constructed EVA suit. Make no mistake, any individual who might read this, this war was won on the blood of Titans. And we must never forget that. End log. Many in Incadel space, like the captain, attribute our victory to humanity. I am inclined to agree with them. In this history, you'll come to agree with me as well. End of story. Story number two. A perfect solution written by the missing think. This is not war. A war has at least two participants. And right now these invaders barely register our existence. The general shouted. In all the times we have been fighting them, we've drawn blood once. His voice became grim. I don't need to remind you the cost of that victory, the lives sacrificed, the equipment destroyed. That's why you'll all have been brought here. Scientists, engineers, creative thinkers, we need something, anything to make them notice us. Maybe then they'll accept our surrender, start the slaughter, and leave us the hell alone. You've been assigned groups. Talk to each other and find us something we can use. No ideas will be dismissed. Don't get to work. The lecture hall broke out into a confused babble as the hundred delegates talked to and sometimes over each other. A few groups headed to the whiteboards that had been prepared, some rapidly filling them with arcane symbols of advanced science, others with seemingly nonsensical words and phrases that nevertheless captured the thoughts of the particular group. As the hours passed, the noise level slowly dropped as each group was forced to discard their theories as they proved unworkable or simply impossible. Eventually, there was a single group still working, their board surrounded by everyone else in attendance, making comments and throwing out suggestions. Their growing excitement and enthusiasm became steadily more pronounced. Sir, I think we have something. The group's spokesman finally called out. We'll need to run some tests, of course, but... This theory and design are sound. Well, wild with it. What is your grand idea to save the human race? The general replied, the harshness tinged with the barest beginnings of hope. A virus, sir. But very special virus. We believe that we can make the invaders think that we're, um, uh, cute. The spokesman's embarrassment was palpable. Cute! Cute! The general roared. What good would it be if they think that we're cute? Well, sir, uh... What do you think about cats? End of story. 1934. Story number one. A handful of minutes written by Echoing Cascade. 
in a small station in the middle of nowhere. Crowless, a Mysorean worker, was eating while waiting for his commanding officer. It was his first outing into the station that served as a refueling stop for the ship he now served. Everyone had stayed well out of his way, and he sat down on an empty bench near the exit of a cafeteria. It had struck him as odd that no one else was seated there already, since most of the other available spots were occupied. The same people who had avoided his gaze had started to look at him angrily as he messily began to eat the meal he had brought, but he didn't care. He was a proud Mysorean worker, seven feet tall, reptilian, man with claws that could flay anyone who actually tried to fight him. After finishing eating the rather well-cooked meat on a stick, he was able to leave when something peculiar happened. An Angmorak, four feet tall, grey-skinned and with big black eyes, was floating in front of his feet. What the hell do you want? The Immorak floated closer to the large warrior until he was mere inches from his face. Clean that up. The small grey man pointed at the bench. The Mysorean had expected many things. This was not one of them. Before he could say anything, however, his commanding officer had entered the cafeteria. The man was large, even by Mysorean standards, and had a labyrinth of scars on his face. He quickly noticed the strange atmosphere as more people had stopped eating and were moving towards the Mysoreans, holding eating utensils as makeshift weapons. Explain! He had asked for this for his subordinate, but the Imorak answered first. Look! He pointed at the bench. The officer's eyes went wide, and without a word, he backhanded Crowless, who crashed into the wall. The man then took off his cape, knelt down, and asked for some water, as he proceeded to clean the bench with zeal. That would have shocked the Crowless, were he still conscious. Crowless woke up in the ship's infirmary. The last thing he remembered was a large fist rapidly getting closer to his face. Then it hit him. Commander Solaris knocked me out. Why? While still confused, he tried to lift himself from the bed when a clawed hand stopped him. It was his commander. Crowless was equal parts panicked and confused. What? Did I do something to displease you, sir? The large Mysoran officer looked at him with a mix of rage and pity. I would like to tell you a story. Crowless nodded, not that he had a lot of options. Sorolus stood over Crowless, who remained flat in his bed. Only three years ago, a scourge incursion happened on that station. Crowless shivered. Scourge, powerful, undead, and relentless. A nightmare to face on the battlefield. Sorolus continued. Tell me how fast you can run from a cafeteria back to our vessel. Crowless was confused, but he was trained to answer when the officer asked the question. I don't know, sir. Two minutes, maybe less. He was a warrior. He was in great shape, so a turnaround speed was expected. Sorolus nodded. Good. Now how long to finish pre-launch procedures? Uh, 30 seconds. Sorolus nodded. Now, how long could you hold a hundred or so scourge infested trying to get through the cafeteria doors into the landing bay? Crowless flexed his claws in fear and contemplation. Oh, I, I don't, uh, I don't know, sir. Sorolus moved closer to his subordinate. Could you hold them long enough for your fellow warriors to run into the ship and launch into the safety of space? Crowless was about to answer when he was cut off. Without weapons, without armor, without claws, without vans. Crowless had felt intimidated by the story until that point. Now he was positively terrified. 
Mal! Oh, no, sir. Sorrelis moved back, grabbed a nearby chair and sat next to the bed. All sense of irritation gone from his demeanor. He did that. Grolis sat up and looked at his commander. Oh, and why do we not sing of his heroics? A human, an elderly vagrant. Sorrelis turned to look at Grolis in the eyes. Keep in mind that this was long before they integrated into galactic society. Humans stuck mostly to themselves at the time, but some became stowaways looking for adventure or a better life elsewhere. Anywhere. This man was a stowaway? Yes, he lived off the unsold food given by the restaurant owners to the station, in exchange for odd jobs. So he owled off the horde of scourge for scraps of food. Solaris bolted out of the chair and grabbed Crowless by the neck and lifted him off the bed, one-handed. No! He did it for the respect they showed him! The respect that they continued to show him by keeping the bench he called home after closing hours, free of even a speck's dust! Sorrelis put him down, not too gently. Crowless understood his mistake, and he felt many things. Chief amongst them, shame. He should have asked for more information before venturing into the station. He had disrespected an honorable warrior who had died in the protection of others. What was his name? I need to make a proper amends. Sorrenus looked pleased at Crowless, but the look faded into sadness. No one knows his true name, but he had no family, and no record was found by the Terran Alliance when they investigated. Crowless was crestfallen. A hero of that caliber, and no song could be made to honor him, not without his true name. All we know is that he held the doors closed for over seven minutes, without weapons, without armor, without claws, without fangs, without hope of survival. And maybe that is enough. Crowless got up and looked himself in the mirror. Could I ever do such a thing? He looked at himself and made a vow to be better than this. He lifted his hand to his face and under his right eye he carved the number seven with his own claw. Thirty years later, in the middle of solace and human conflict, as a Terran Alliance colony was about to be overrun by an overwhelming number of solar ships, a small fleet of Mysoran vessels interposed themselves when the colony asked why they were doing so, as they were not allies or even on amicable terms, the Mysoran fleet commander, a warrior sporting the number seven under his right eye, responded, I stood alone for seven minutes without weapons, without armor, without claws, without fangs. The Mysoran fleet will stand for seven days and seven nights. This marked the turning point in the Mysoran slash human relationship. From barely tolerating one another to fast friends. Crotus, the hero of the twelve-day siege of Asheron VI, was immortalized in song, and many young Mysoran, awed by his tale, wondered who the man who stood alone was. They would all eventually make their way into a small refueling station, in the outskirts of the Mysoran-slash-Terran territory, where a bench is kept immaculate to this day. End story. Story number two. Death Wolves, not as bad as you think. Written by Fred Lowe. Beginning playback. Title screen. Death Wolves, not as bad as you think. 
Title screen fades to show a sweeping shot along the beach of a body of water, before settling on a human wearing tan pants, colorful shirt, and a necklace of flowers. Beautiful, isn't it? Liquid water under the bright and sunny sky. Hello, I'm William Smith. You may remember me from such informational films, such as A Predator's Concern and Coupling. Can you do the do with you-know-who? As most of us know, there are three primary kinds of worlds that commonly sustain life. These designated are paradise worlds, ambivalent worlds, and uh, death worlds. Today, I'm here to discuss the third category, death worlds. Most species have their own classifications for death worlds, depending on the species. Where I am right now, Earth, can range from a Class 3 death world to one species declaring Earth as a Class 37 death world. To understand the reason why classifications can vary so much due to the inherent dangers the world can expose you to. The fact that we have actual liquid water covering the vast majority of our planet already makes us a death world in the eyes of at least four species. A great many things can cause the classification number to tick upward. The sun bathing the planet with not only visible light, but infrared and ultraviolet light is an issue to some. Poisonous plants, venomous animals, natural predatory beasts still skulking about. And even the fact that prey can be just as dangerous as their predators can scare other species. Atmospheric gases, active volcanoes, tectonic shifts, severe weathers, you name it. If it is cause an issue, it adds to the death world classification. On Earth, here, the biggest threat to almost every species is the gravity. We are rated at an astounding 9.8 meters per second per second. The agreed gravity on most galactic installations is about 2.6 meters per second per second to accommodate the vast majority of known species. That alone makes us a death world to almost everybody. But there are still ways that can be handled. Some species have developed powerful exoskeletons or buoyancy providing environmental suits for short-term use in high-gravity worlds, such as ours. The atmosphere itself is a fairly large issue. The atmosphere of Earth is about 78% nitrogen, 20% oxygen, and 0.22% carbon dioxide. And the rest are trace gases. The fact the concentration of oxygen is so low often means supplemental breathing equipment must be included in your travel itinerary if you wish to visit here. Figure fades out and is replaced by videos of some kind of tribal dancing, vast jungles, barren deserts, sprawling cities, and a blue sky with birds of flight. However, a trip to a death world can be enlightening. It allows you to view other cultures, explore vast biomes, amazing architecture, and see the creatures that you may never have known existed. Video switches back to the man now laying in a chair with some kind of drink with a tiny umbrella in it. A death world may seem like a scary place on paper, but in reality, if you can work around some of the more uh, pressing issues, it can be quite a nice vacation destination. I hope that you can change your mind about visiting some other places you may never have gone. Join me next time for Pray Not Always Harmless. The man takes a drink as the screen fades to white. The logo that included a facsimile of Earth appears in the words, brought to you by in part with the Terran Tourism Bureau, before fading to black. End playback. End of story. 1935.
Story number one. How it's made. Strike drones, written by C-SPAN. Today on How It's Made, Falcon Biomechanical Strike Drones, Shoelaces, Vintage Electrical Switches, and Paper Books. Once considered a lesser alternative to human-operated fighters, the Terran Falcon Biomechanical Strike Drone is now the backbone of the human fleet. Formidable fighting machines, even on their own, the real strength of the Falcon is in numbers. Not having to worry about the safety of your fighters allows tacticians to utilize bolder, more aggressive strategies. The assembly process begins with spiders. A worker inserts a carefully calibrated blend of proteins into a tank full of golden orb-weaving spiders. These spiders have been genetically modified to produce silk many times stronger than their natural counterparts. The spiders eat the protein mixture and almost immediately begin spinning. Several days later, the spiders are transferred into another tank and a worker collects the webs and a specialized scraping tool. The webs are placed into a machine that shreds them into short, even segments. The shredded webs are then transferred into a vat where a worker slowly adds a binding agent while raising the temperature. The mixture is stirred throughout the process in order to prevent coagulation. After five hours, the webs and binding agent have been transformed into a composite resin. The resin is a thick and viscous liquid now, but when cooled it transforms into a lightweight material which is stronger than steel. The hot resin is drained through a valve at the bottom of the vat into a tank. From there, high-pressure pumps force the resin into various molds, which are then flash-cooled in order to harden the resin and prevent bubbles from forming. A worker removes the parts from the mold and carefully trims the excess composite left over by the forming process. The parts are then placed on a conveyor, where the parts are gradually heated and cooled to reduce thermal stress in the composite. Once the molded parts are out of the oven, another worker assembles them into a frame for the fighter. The parts are designed to snap together, with no need for adhesion. A skilled worker can assemble a frame in minutes. The worker then carefully places the genetically modified embryo into a special compartment of the frame. The assembled frame is then attached to a wire rack and lowered into a vat with nutrient broth. The exact specifics of the growth of the biomechanical strike drones are highly classified. However, we do know that it does take a month for the process to complete. With the embryo slowly growing over the frame as it extracts nutrients from the surrounding liquid. What emerges from the vat bears little resemblance to what went in. In place of a skeleton-like composite frame is now a sleek and aerodynamic body. A technician carefully checks both the physical structure and genetic makeup of the drone. To ensure that the growth process functioned as intended, Acceptable units are sent to the next stage of assembly, while failed units are recycled. The fully grown drone hulls are then transported to another part of the factory. The engines and weapon systems are too mechanically complex to grow and are manufactured with various alloys and ceramics off-site. After being transported to the factory, a worker loosely fits them into slots on the hull of the drone. The final component of the strike drone is their brain, despite their name. The brains of the Falcon Strike Drones are actually derived from crow brains. A 3D printer creates a substrate for the brain to grow on. A worker places a small amount of Cape Crow neurons on the substrate before placing it into an incubator. Over the course of several weeks, the neurons consume and replace the substrate, leaving the exact replica of a crow brain. A worker removes the brain from the incubator and places it in a machine, which inserts electrodes into specific places in the tissue. 
The worker then attaches a small chip to the electrode mesh. This allows the drone to communicate wirelessly and receive outside commands. A technician then tests the brain for reaction time and stimulus response using the electrode mesh. Now properly prepared, the brains are transported to the waiting drone bodies. A worker places the brain into the counterpart near the center of the drone. The drone is once again attached to the wire mesh and lowered into a nutrient vat. This time, however, the drone only stays in the vat for a few hours, long enough for the connections between the body, brain, engines, weapons to properly form. After being removed from the bath, the now-completed drones are subjected to a thorough cleaning and final round of quality control. After leaving the factory, the drones are transported to a combat zone all across the galaxy. They help the Terran military maintain peace, order, and security throughout the galaxy. Story number two, Sharpstick, written by British Tea Company. Prized for their strength and resilience overall, the Sogoth would make a fine additions to the new Empire's motley collection of client races in their civil war with their brothers. Though the unfathomable age and superior technology had left many races eagerly lapping at the back and call of the humans, the Sogoth, as proud as they were strong, had refused to bend the knee so easily. Normally, the humans would forget such a defiant race easily and leave them to fend for themselves against their much more genocidal brethren. But the ability of the Shogoth's strength and martial history had left them to be desired amongst the new empire. They would play this little game. The Sogoth had a tradition within their culture that violence was the solution to most problems. Now, many would probably argue that a race that thought this way about quite literally any large-scale problem could never make it into space. Though the Shogoth continuously insisted that their most intelligent scientists were likely smart and most importantly good fighters as well when it came to be their time to defend their research and personal honor against any critics to their work. How true this is is anybody's guess, but that of course wasn't the part of the humans cared about. You see, political issues could be solved with violence, and this included things like who got to run the state. A large-scale war which would leave the Sogoth battered and broken wasn't what the humans wanted. They wanted an army of powerful Xena warriors, and they wanted them now. So, what both parties settled for was an honorable duel. The leaders of both civilizations would have a trial by combat, and if the humans won, the Sogoth would swear allegiance to them. If not... The death of only one legitimate ruler in the Imperial throne would probably be terrible, to say the least. President Sakra, like most rulers of the Sogoth, was an apex warrior. Physically imposing at eight feet, and a gigantic lizard strength was matched only by the cunning and tactical guile. Coupled with a charismatic and gun-ho warrior spirit, the former Emperor Valreth Shalrock probably would have liked the company of such a creature if only he was human. Given that Valroth had been born from generations of conquerors and warriors and had reapplied to the best gene therapy to himself to mold himself into the perfect warlord, it was no surprise that Sakra would be eager to face the last living heir of such a fighter. Sakra was perhaps a bit let down when he finally saw the new empire's current ruler, Emperor Tia Sharlak wasn't someone that most people wouldn't expect with the only heir of an eight-foot-tall juggernaut from an elder race that predated the evolution of most current species. Where Valroth had been bullish, Tier was quiet. Her lack of impassioned yelling and boasting before the fight had lent most of the believers that she wasn't a fighter. Truth was, she wasn't. 
There wasn't a single human who was a fighter. Every human was a killer. What's that human holding? A sharp stick? How bad could it be? Flexing his armored gauntlet to a more comfortable position, Balrain Alrak watched this sandy arena as he took his position by his empress. Standing over twelve feet tall, the captain of the Imperial Guard looked more like a small neck, more than a flesh and blood being. His aging features gave a confident smile underneath his ornate helmet as two other Imperial Guardsmen arrived to greet the Empress outside. As unintimidating as Tyr looked by herself, there was a subtle hint of unease in the ranks of the aliens at the way the two juggernauts bowed so low in front of such a tiny creature. Leveling her spear against Sakura before pointing it at the ground, there was a few wows and a few snickers. The human empress was wearing a dress of all things to wear to a fight. Even though powered armor was banned, at least she could have worn anything else besides a goddamned dress. A careful observer would note the ornate nature of the spear, how valuable it looked, but for an emperor with its painstaking attention to detail, one must wonder what arcane secrets went into the creation of such a pretty thing. Balrain took a glance at the reaction of the Xenos in the crowd, looking at his empress with a level of confidence one would consider arrogant. He calmly sat back and watched the offspring of Valroth show the creature human metal. Where the Sargoths had naturally strong race, certainly, was Chakra a powerful fighter? Easily. Yet, to even the most ordinary human, Sakra's movements appeared in slow motion. What this meant to someone like Charlac, who could count the passage of time in microseconds, or Balrain, who could count the nanoseconds passing by. Before the eyes of most Zenos could even see what happened, Sakra was bent over, a spear stuck straight in his chest as he looked down in disbelief as Tierre moved in a blur. With one powerful hoist, the Empress sent Sakura's body smashing against the ground, the incredible force of hundreds of thousands of years of gene therapy, and perfection splattered the alien into a broken wreck. To his species' credit, Sakura was still alive. He stared straight at Tia's spear. The crowd watched as it began to glow. A powerful beam shot straight from the tip, reducing the fallen alien into ash. A few of the human onlookers watched with satisfaction as the Xenos pledged loyalty to their new overlord. Others wondered why exactly they even needed them to begin with. End of story. 1936. Story number one. Boxes and boards written by Vass. So, uh, you've been doing field research some time now, huh? Oh, yes. I've been following this one specimen for this new species we found. In fact, I have a drone following it right now. What have you learned? Well, it's an odd species. I don't know what else to say. It's unlike anything I've ever seen. The day before yesterday, it woke up and just poked a board all day. Poked a board? Yeah, uh, they have big boards and little boards and they poked them. Huh. What did a board do? I don't know. There are pictures on them sometimes. There's also this box. A box? Yeah. A box and it has two boards connected to it. One has pictures and they poke at the other one. What does it do with them? It just pokes them. Just pokes them? Yeah. What do they do? I don't know. There are pictures sometimes. They just poke boards and look at pictures. Yeah, I guess. 
What do they eat? Well, uh, this one I followed. Pokes the board and then someone comes to him and gives him a box. A box? Yeah. Uh-huh. So they poke the board and get a box and eat the box. No, no, no. They don't eat the box. Uh, there's food in the box. Ah. Yeah. That makes sense. How do they breed, then? I don't know. But I think I'm onto it. How so? Well, sometimes it wakes up and the board screams. And it pokes it. The board. The board screams? Yeah, the little board. It goes totally mad and starts screaming. But then it pokes it and it goes quiet. After a while, it screams again and it pokes it again. It goes like that for 30 minutes. Okay. Well, anyway, it gets up, gets food from the big box and then walks out in a hurry. It goes to this other place where there are many others of its kind. No. Interesting. What do they do there? Do they, mate? Oh, no, 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 no. They have many boards and many boxes. Uh, they poke them. Again with the boards. Yeah, they really like the boards. So what happened then? Well, the specimen I followed poked boards there together with the others for eight hours. Sometimes it stopped and then went to the other spaces and poked little boards it carries with it everywhere. But how do they mate? With the boxes? I can't say. I'm sure they poked something. Uh-huh. Sometimes they form small groups that go into smaller spaces and one of them pokes a big board with the other watchers. It's a power display, or a mating ritual, or something. It must have something to do with mating. Or maybe they come from the boxes? From the boxes, yeah. This doesn't sound like it's going to get anywhere. They aren't intelligent, are they? Ha! Uh, certainly not. They just poke boards all day. But isn't it fascinating how something like this can survive? Nature is truly amazing. Alien anthropologist observing the daily life of a programmer who orders pizza and goes to work. End of story. Story number two. Baller's life written by Old Phil. Life is good. Humans are good. Ball is life. I don't remember much about being a puppy. I had brothers and sisters, my little mates. We competed for milk and played and cuddled up to sleep together. It was really nice. I love that. One by one, my little mates went away. The strange human would come with their pack and would choose one of us. It was so happy. We were so happy. It was nice. I love that. I never got chosen by human, though. Just me and the two other of my little mates were brought to a strange shelter place with lots of dogs. We each got our own private cage room. We could poop and pee where we sleep, which was a little strange. But I learned to deal with it. Lots of doggies to talk to. And when the human volunteers came, we'd play together outside. We could play fetch with the ball. Ball is amazing. Ball is life. I love that. Then my humans finally came and picked me up. I was so happy. But my humans didn't like me, I guess. They beat me and made me scared. I didn't love that so much. But they ended up bringing me back to the shelter place. It was boring and I cried a lot because I lost my humans. Even though they beat me, at least they'd play with me. Luckily, it wasn't long before my new humans adopted me. I loved that. But the one human, the oldest, he didn't like me. He didn't beat me, but he yelled at me a lot for making poo-poo. That was confusing. Doesn't everyone make poo-poo? Am I not supposed to poo-poo? Very confusing. 
he ended up taking me back to the shelter place again. Strange life. But at least I got to play with the ball, the young human, a lot before I was put back in my cage room again. I wasn't in the shelter for very long this time. Two humans picked me up and took me outside. Yay! I love outside. I got to ride in the human vehicle. It goes so fast, and the wind feels so amazing on your face. They were very nice humans, too. They took me to the doggy doctor, and I got shots. I almost noticed that they stuck me with needles. I was too busy licking, kissing, and showing my new human friends that I'm a good doggy, and I love them. My new house was amazing. I had a yard all to myself. Sure, I'd have it to totally murder kill a few birds, a squirrel, and absolutely positively end the life of a bunny that wandered into my yard. How dared they occupy my yard? That's where I poo-poo, of course. But I brought slightly mutilated corpses to my humans to show them. But they didn't seem to be happy that I politely murdered something in my yard, as good boys do. They didn't even want to eat it. Strange, but okay. Gotta say we had our ups and downs at first, though, with the new humans. But I finally figured out why they are angry about poo-poo. Turns out you do not poo-poo where you sleep. That was hard for me to learn after the shelter cage sleep slash poop room I lived in for so long. But I learned to only poo-poo in my yard because I'm a good doggy and I love my humans. We play the best games. Ball is life. Tug is great. Wrestling is amazeballs. And sorry if my doggy teeth hurt you accidentally from time to time. That laser pointy thing. Now. Holy crap balls, that is the most greatest amazing super fun playtime ever. I'll even ignore the ball in favor of it. And ball is life. I love that. And when we're sadly not play, I get to lay in bed with my big human. He keeps telling me that I have to lay down on the far away from him corner, which he calls my spot. But he doesn't seem to always mind me laying purposely in his way or even on him. You know just to remind him that I'm totally up for playing, or just attention in any form or fashion at a moment's notice. Life is good. Have a nice big house, kids to play with, a big bed to sleep in. I am loved. Humans are good. I love them. P.S. Ball is life. End of story. Story number three, The Weatherman, written by Zero Cease. It started small, a few sensor readings, some charts, a weather map or two. From it, new predictions, an oncoming storm, a hurricane, a drought. We could see it coming, but it cannot protect us. Time goes on, we become more accurate. We send up a satellite, facing down to watch the Earth from above. Then we send another, then a thousand. We take their data and make a map of the weather, far more accurate than any we've had before. We see the worst ahead and can prepare for it. People can be evacuated, homes boarded, planes grounded. But we want to see more. We put other sensors, new types of sensors, into the ground at our feet. But their data, we even better predictions come forth. Earthquakes, landslides, volcanoes all become simple. We hear them coming before they make a sound. Deaths from natural disasters cease to be realistic. 
but it is nothing. We make newer, lighter, more efficient sensors. We put them in orbit, raising the stars. We see the cosmos before us and make our own predictions, as we always have. No meteor will near our skies. No solar flare will harm our satellites. We see them. We can protect ourselves before they arrive. We are safe from nature. But it isn't enough. We think bigger. We make new senses, like man has never seen before. They can see gravity itself. The data is collected and brings us ever great predictions. Planets, moons, asteroids far outside our sight are visible now. Their movements can be forecast from across the stars. Nothing will surprise us ever again. But it can go further. We build a station like never before. We have the greatest senses man has ever dreamed. We see the universe as only a higher being might be able to. Every rock in the galaxy is under our graze, and we can predict them. In 10,000 years, two planets a million light years away will collide, and we can predict how their remains will reform a new world. But we aren't satisfied. We build a weather station foot for the gods. They can see an electron on the other side of the galaxy. Hear a pin drop in the next build an earthquake on the other side of the universe. He can predict the state of every atom in our galaxy with absolute accuracy for the next five million years. Nothing can blind us to the truth. But we know this isn't the end. We make a sphere around our solar system, a sensor array like none other that will ever exist. We know that no other will ever exist because it sees all. Every subatomic particle in every corner of the universe, we call it the Weatherman. They can predict the future over a hundred billion years away. Nothing is left to be seen or predicted. But the time for prediction is now over. The time to act begins. End of story. 1937. Climate Change. Written by Crumb J.D. Otar Terry sits watching the fire. His name means steals from lions. Or at least, it's understood that way. From is implied by the construction of the word, and Otar doesn't quite mean steals, in the same way that tens of thousands of years in the future. His society has a few dozen people, none of whom own more than twenty different things, thus the sense of it is more like what children do with each other's toys. Takes without asking. For that matter, Talay is more than just lions. It's also a color. A golden brown of color of a lion's pelt or a dry summer grass. It's not a coincidence that these things are the same and Talay's tribe, the true people, don't think it's a coincidence. So they encode that knowledge in their speech. Otan Talay is his true name an adult's name that was given to him when he passed the trials of manhood. As such, he really does steal from lions. In fact, he taught the trick to his cohort of warriors, and now, at need, they all do. They came about like this. During the hot, dry season, the true people eat very well. The young men of the tribe cut an antelope out of the local herd. Then they work in shifts, chasing the beasts in great loops across the hot plain keeping it ever-moving, and throwing rocks at it to weaken it and slow it down. During the chase, the slower members of the tribe stay near the river to keep the prey from reaching its cool water. 
Eventually, the antelope tires, balls, and the tribe feasts. But the ember from the Maker's Fire wobbles in the eternal circle around the world, so there's a second season, and that is cool and wet. The antelope don't tire so easily when the sunlight is soft, and there are marshy patches from which they can drink. It generally takes a lucky shot with a stone to bring one down. The tribe eats poorly of wild berries and tubers. Tele's grandfather said his grandfather said that it wasn't always this way. Then the sun was always hot, and the tribe could always catch the antelope. The tribe's shaman says this was to be expected. Embers cooled down, after all. When Tele learned his trick, he wasn't concerned with that. He just wanted to eat, and that was where the otar came in. Lions don't chase their prey. Instead, they'd lie in the tele-colored grass and spring out in a flurry of sudden violence, capturing an antelope in a few dozen strides and dragging it down. During the wet season, their prey grows fat on the moist grass and young antelope are born, so the lions eat very well. One day, Tele, who still wore his boy's name, saw a sleek, well-fed pride lying in the sun by the remnants of their meal, and he saw those remnants included several meaty haunches, which had yet to be eaten. Now the true people and the lions have a sort of armistice. A lion can kill a man, of course, but a man can often injure the lion in the process. Its fellow beasts won't bring it food while they recover, so it amounts to the same thing. Men don't approach lions, and lions stay away from men. As such, the boy imagined that if you went up to the lions, they'd jump back. And if you took some of the meat, they'd ignore the offense. So he walked up, and they jumped back. Then he took meat, and they let him. After that, the tribe ate well for a night, and they had one more way to get food. All of this, Tele considers as he sits by the fire and watches the unmarried woman dance. He is somewhat worried about what the true people would do when the ember grows yet colder. Surely, the lions will grow tired of having their food taken. Can a man learn to hide in tall grass and bring down an antelope in a few strides? It seems unlikely. Men run far, but not so fast. So how will these children's children's children get their food? Then he notices a pretty frog is looking at him. She is plump and a smiling girl. And by the standards of the true people, this makes her very attractive. Delay is smart enough to realize that for his children's children's children to need food, he must first find a wife and have some children. He puts aside the thoughts of hunting from the long grass and considers how he'll move when the men join the dance. It is later and the world has grown colder. Another man sits in front of another fire. This fire, however, isn't on the plain with the happy people dancing about it, but rather at the mouth of a cave. Or perhaps a small hollow doesn't deserve that name. It formed where dirt eroded from a ceiling of overhanging stone, and it is no more than a dozen feet deep and too short to stand in. The man's name is Drath. It doesn't mean anything, but the C is hard, and the R is rolled off if your tongue can manage that. Behind him, there is a cough. It is his youngest child, and Drath worries about her, so he sets a bit more fuel on the fire. It is known that heat is good for a cough. His wife told him not to worry, but he does anyway. It has been cold, not hard water cold. Drath has only seen that once in his 17 years, 
but smoked breath cold, and Drath's mother died during a similar period, and he was young. She'd had a cough which had grown worse, then liquid, then finally she turned blue in the hands and lips. It wasn't known why this was bad, or how to fix it, but it was the end of a time in the world. In his mother's day, members of the clan had generally had a single pulp to warm them in the cold. Of course, the clan had hunted and eaten as much as ever, but they hadn't known the trick of keeping pelts around for long periods. In those days, hides had been scraped, then cleaned, then used. They would last for a while, and then they would dry and crumble, or, if it was wet enough, they would get the white slime. It was known that once the slime was on a hide, it shouldn't be used. If one did so, every scratch they took would fester. The spirits of illness were drawn to the slime. In those days, members of the clan shivered under a single hide when it grew cold. That hadn't been enough warmth for Drath's mother in her illness. After his mother's death, Drath had been given the hides she'd used and the end of her life. The hide had almost immediately taken the white slime. Drath found himself furious with the hide. It hadn't warmed his mother, and it was useless to him. So he peed all over it. That hadn't been a reasonable or practical thing to do. However... He'd been driven by his rage and the lack of a target for his anger. He peed on the hide and then rolled it up in a tight, wet roll so that he could pee on it more later. He'd drunk more than he needed so he could pee on it more frequently. He'd kept it up for months. In short, he pursued his campaign of urination with a fervor that suggested he actually believed that he could hurt an inanimate thing. Strangely, quite the opposite had happened. On the hide, the white mold had died and flaked off. Yet, the hide hadn't begun to dry. Not even when Drath had stopped his treatments. Instead, it had become more flexible and softer. It didn't degrade. And a new thing was known. Behind him, his youngest coughs again. It is an easier sound and less urgent. It is loud enough to wake Drath's wife. He sits up in a pile of hides under which the family sleeps. Sweat is beaded across her brow and breasts. She looks at Drath and then reaches out to feel her child's head. After a moment, she pulls her hand back and speaks softly so as to not wake the young one. The heat is out of her. Will you leave that and come to sleep now? Drath considers for a moment, but he knows his wife is right. He banks the flame and then joins his family in the pile of cured furs. It is later, and the world has grown colder. Winter is coming. Alan isn't worried about that. His name means Mighty Hunter, or Great Large Superior Hunter, perhaps. It wasn't a true name given to him after someone knew how well he'd actually hunt, but it proved to be a correct name anyway. That season, he killed many of the sheep that his clan, the Wolf Brothers, follow. As such, his wives had dried the great deal of meat for winter, and his children have gathered many edible roots, seeds, nuts, and berries. Alan has even succeeded in trapping a live sheep. It's tied up outside his family's tent, and now his children gather grass for it, so it remains nice and plump, ready for eventual slaughter. His family will be fine when the snow comes. Alon watches a sheep caught below him in the bushes that fill the small hollow between the two hills. The sheep ran there to escape his spear, and normally that would have be been the end of the chase, 
as the creatures are quick and clever in the brush. However, no amount of cleverness can prevent accidents, and the animal has gotten its horn stuck. Now Alon has a choice. He can spear the creature from above and take it back to his family for preservation, or he can try and capture it alive. As Alon contemplates the trapped sheep, the wind causes the brush to rustle with a dry sound, and the dog that has been traveling with Alon through his hunt settles to its haunches and rests. Dog is startlingly similar to the animals which will continue to live with humans millennia into the future. It knows its human is thinking about something, and that it might take a moment, so it uses the time to relax. The advantage of taking the sheep alive is it can be butchered at need, even if the need comes deep in the winter. There would be more food that way, as the fat is lost when the meat is dried. However, he really has one living trapped sheep, so does he need a second? If he tries to trap it, it might lose it, and there will be some risk in the attempt. The sheep are not, for the most part, dangerous prey. That's why wolf brothers hunt them. Still, it begins close enough to tie up the sheep they can bite. That might break his skin and cause a wound they could take sick. They can also kick hard enough to break delicate bones, which would hinder future hunting. He lifts his spear, preparing to throw. His dog stands. He doesn't need the extra meat. Not really. Even without the first trap sheep, there's enough dried food to get his family to the spring lambing. A thought strikes Alon as he stays his hand. The thought is like something from outside of himself, like the lights that flash in a storm clouds, or perhaps like something falling out of a tree and onto his head. Might the sheep in the bush below get a lamb on the one back in his tent? The one here is male. He can tell from its horns, and the one at the tent is female. That would be enough if they were dogs or people. And he sees no reason it should work differently for sheep. Yet, if it works like that, he can surely trap the lambs after they're born. That possibility makes Alon mouth fall open slightly. What would he be left with then? Perhaps eight sheep trapped outside of his tent next fall. Such a thing was unheard of. His family might take it through the winter on that alone. It would be a bit hard for his children to gather the grass for so many, but they'd find a way. Yes, that wealth was worth the risk of the animal caught in the brush. Alon lets his spear fall. The dog is surprised, and it gives him a funny look. Alon doesn't notice. He strides down the hill towards the small sheep to change the world. It is later, and the world is colder. Humans travel through the land that will someday be known as Berengia. The people call it New Land, and they call themselves One People. Despite that name, they have no more relationship with the True People than all humans have to each other. In their legends, the sun isn't an ember, but rather something bioluminescent like the lights in the fish in the ocean. They don't particularly associate it with heat. They have certainly never chased prey to exhaustion under a hot sun. In fact, the land has very little in the way of life or prey. It is an expanse of dull-colored grasses, small, hardly grazing creatures, and large white bears that eat the grazers, and the vast swarms of mosquitoes. Nothing large or nutritious grows in the ground because it's always frozen at the feet down and spends much of the year under deep snow. To the one people, the seashore is life. They hunt creatures that come up to the land to rest, or mate, or warm themselves. 
The one people's main strategy for catching those creatures is that the sea creatures are slow and clumsy on land. Hunted meat represents almost all of their diet. Organ meats are now highly prized and they're eaten raw. Meat eaten raw gives the one people vitamins that they need to avoid scurvy, rickets, beriberi, pellagra, and a dozen other conditions. Not that they know this, of course. To them, it's just the way one eats. The one people think they lead an easy life in their cold, empty land. They are traveling this way because their wise woman had a vision that this new land would be unoccupied and, thus, rich. It has been proven to be a true vision. The clam beds are never picked over before they arrive. Dry fuel can be gathered without much effort, and none of the local prey knows to fear the human form or flee from human hunters. Families grow in size due to the abundance, and the one people spread ever further in the empty land. It is later, and the world is warmer. Billions of humans live in the world. They occupy shining cities of glass and steel. Their ancestors might briefly mistake them for gods, but only briefly, where everything that has changed much hasn't. The old lusts and passions remain the same. Laughter and love, anger and pain. These are untouched by the passage of years. The people in the shining cities face dangers, struggles for limited resources, and even worry about the future temperature of the world. They also observe the world around them. They plan, they study, they grow, they learn. Nothing is ever really guaranteed. But the future looks bright. End of story. 1938 Story number one. Hard names, soft hearts. Written by underscore underscore dash underscore 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 dash 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 underscore. Everyone knows of Homo sapiens sapiens. Everyone has their own name for them. Some artful and some more technical. Almost everyone of the wider interstellar community can agree that they're arseholes. From leaders that flaunt their nature of their earth, to pirates and miscreants that use rather inventive threats and violence to enforce their wounds. If any earthly made it onto the various interstellar media platforms, it was never something nice or wholesome. Someone's alliance broke, marauders struck some innocent outpost, on and on. Everyone knows of earthlings, but not many know an earthling despite being surrounded by them. They're a small block in a grand scheme of things, something their political leaders are still coming to terms with. Despite the mundane block of power they represent, their diaspora is a second to none, including species driven to near extinction through unfortunate misadventure and warfare. If there are mines, you'll find earthling miners. If there are fields to be tended or harvested, you'll find earthlings taking care of it. If you get in trouble... They're more than likely the ones who will respond. Not a particular nation-state, company, or enterprise, but individuals or small groups of earthlings. If you go looking, you'll find examples. But you have to go looking, which is a shame. Else you'd never hear about the SS Grimlock incident. It's hard to read its name, much less say, but it was a fascinating event. SS Grimlock was a bulk handler. Something the Earthlings called a tugboat that happened across a comet orbital platform that had lost stabilization and was sent drifting into space. The platform's shuttle compartment was lost during the collision that had destabilized its orbit, meaning what was left of the Puri crew were now on their way to becoming victims of the latest misadventure. 
another bureaucratic footnote, as no one could respond without prior approval. Interstellar rescue is expensive. That didn't stop the platform's crew from sending out a beacon when it noticed Grimlock. Of all the species to stop, it was them. The Grimlock didn't have the space to take on the Puri crew, but that didn't matter. They had resources, 3D printers, and time. Within a week, the platform's structure had been repaired and reinforced, and additional atmosphere generators had been jury-rigged together by the Grimlock's crew to keep everyone breathing. Three weeks later, the platform was in orbit around a designated agricultural world. True, the Puri couldn't land. No one had proper papers. Papers take time. No one would force them out of orbit, but neither could they make planifor. Those earthlings screwing the Grumlock and those working in the fields didn't care. Donations of foodstuffs and textiles were arranged with spare parts and other surplus from Grumlock to keep everyone safe and sound. Strangers who weren't connected politically, ideologically, or even spoke the same language banded together to help a species that their species didn't have the best political relations with. Simply because it would be a shame to not help them in some form, even if that was providing half of the last cookie, even if space spiders were supposed to be enemies. Because maybe they'd be the ones in need of hope tomorrow. End of story. Story number two. A typical day at the office, written by Echoing Cascade. At the desk of sentient resources. An anxious-looking Ayan is going over her datapad when she suddenly speaks up. Scarlet Dawn. Boss Chief the Man. A tired-looking human male in his fifties size. Conrad. I said you could call me Boss Chief or the Man out of all three. The Ayan slowly nods. Right, so uh, anyway, I think you should take a look at this. She manipulates her datapad and transfers a file to Conrad's screen. Conrad quickly reads over the report. The Imarak Motsu in accounting filed a report on the human female that shares the office with him. So what? Take a closer look at the issue reported. Conrad began to read the long list of grievances and frowned. Whistles while working, which proves Sally Burnside is not given her 100% of the task at hand. Chews too loudly. It's too passive. Shows too much initiative. Does not share her opinion enough, overshares information, reads at irregular intervals. Conrad moves the screen so that he can look at his secretary in the eyes. Is this a joke? The iron checks ahead. No, and read point 53. Conrad quickly finds the compliment in question, face palms and reads it out loud. Refuses to acknowledge being irritated, requiring three days and 432 inquiries before admitting being angry by yelling for no apparent reason. Should we do something? Yeah, before someone gets hurt. We'll talk with their supervisor next week. While the AN secretary started to move on to the next report, she received a new mail and smiles. Good news! Oh! What happened? The new complaint by the Amarak. Conrad narrowed his eyes. How could that be good news? Let me read it to you. She clears her throat. Human Sally has been shopping for a two-handed axe, a large shovel, and looking at remote places in nearby woods while at work. When asked, she simply smiles and claims, It's a surprise for me. See, she wants to take him camping, to bond together. Yeah, no, uh, give me the contact data for her supervisor. The Ian woman looks confused. No! She was startled, but rallied quickly and did as told. 
Hi, uh, Karostas here. Uh, it's about two members on your team, Sally Burnside and Mutso. Transfer the Imarak somewhere he can't work alone and give Sally two weeks off, effective immediately, and give her offer of a month of therapy. No, I don't care how efficient the duo are, but uh, why am I doing this? Let's just say I'm trying to prevent a tragedy. So just do it. Goodbye. She wasn't planning to go camping trip, was she? No, here she was not. Good catch, by the way, many later, and this file will be admitted to evidence. To prove premeditation? No, as a mitigating circumstance. The A.N. secretary returned to work, having learned something new. Even human patience has its limits. End of story. Story number three. I owe you. Written by Teller of Tall Tales. I owe you, man. That is what the human had said after dropping the comms device in my hand and slowly hobbling up the ramp to their newly repaired ship. No one had believed I saved an injured alien, much less that the strange silver part I was given was a communicator. But again, that was many years ago, back when I and most likely the human were young men. I'd been in the forest scavenging for berries when I heard a boom and the falling of many great trees. I ran towards the noise out of curiosity finding a path three times as wide as I was tall, and felled trees and a divot carved into the ground. I followed the long trough-like divot through the forest until I found what had made it, a massive circular ship that hovered just off the ground. A ramp extended to the ground from the middle and a crumpled, bleeding heap of ascension. I quickly ran over, finding the dazed and confused human. There were cuts and punctures up and down his arms. One leg was bent at an unnatural angle. They were saying something in their language, something I couldn't understand yet. I quietly invaded their mind, adopting the strange mammal's language as my own. Help me get a med kit. It's all at the top of the ramp. Please, please help me. I didn't say anything back. I just ran up the ramp, looking for what my mind told me was a box of medical supplies. Spotted a metal box with a green cross emblazoned on the front, and I grabbed it, and I ran out to the human. Cut! Cut the arms of my suit with the shears. I was briefly concerned looking at the skin-tight fabric. But when I retrieved the shears, I saw that they blunted tips. I felt the worry assuaged. With the human's instructions, I cleaned and bandaged and splintered his wounds and broken leg. After giving him something called oxy, he began to calm down. Slowly, he came to his senses. He blinked twice looking at me, but then shook his head softly. Long, vibrant red hair swishing about. Thank you. I got thrown around quite a bit after the miscalculated jump. But, uh, thanks to you, I'll live and hopefully be able to get this thing home. I helped the human to their feet as they stayed. I owe you, man. Need anything? Press this little button here and I'll be able to open up comms link anywhere in the universe. Anyway, I need to get going. Navy don't like it when the test pilots of their new toys get lost for too long. Again, uh, I owe you, man. He slipped the comms device into my hand and hobbled up the ramp. Now, here I sit. Now, here I sit in the brig of a pirate ship with nothing but a pointless little silver doodad. I sighed and pressed the button again. Suddenly, there was a thud against the hull of the ship that made me and the two others jump. And a boarding party. They were in the middle of empty space. Who could? The sound of kinetic firearms reached us dully through the hull. I could scarcely believe my ears. No military used kinetics anymore. Any mildly effective round would have enough recoil to majorly injure most species. 
but the sounds of exploding propellant were getting closer and closer and closer still. Then there was a silence for a moment and the door beeped. Two stacks of ten masked and armored humans swept into the brig, bulky rifles raised and sweeping every corner until they all clear was given. Then one checked the device on their wrist and nodded before slipping the gas mask off the helmet, letting shoulder-length red hair fall loosely. Let's get you guys out of here. I've got a debt to repay. End of story. 1939. The Broken Oath, written by T. Marcos. All right, Ethan sighed, taking his seat and sliding the photograph between two pages of his notebooks. When did you see him last? The woman, sitting across from him, took a moment before she spoke, visibly hovering on the edge of tears. Almost five days ago, she replied. He hadn't come home the night before. Nobody at his studio had seen him. His father's funeral was that weekend. She shook her head, breaking off with clenched fists. As odd he had gone to the bars, so I went to look. I saw him walking on the street with another woman. Ethan jotted a few notes down in his notebook, then looked up at the woman. Ma'am, I think I know the answer to this, so please forgive me for asking. But have you tried contacting the police? Her mouth twisted bitterly. They told me to talk to a divorce attorney, she said. They wouldn't listen. Mr. Carlyle, I looked right into Jeff's eyes. He didn't recognize me. Something is very wrong, and nobody but... She bit her lip, realizing that the rest of her sentence could be considered somewhat rude. Ethan chuckled. It's all right, he reassured her. I'm aware of my reputation. It's not undeserved. So, you think that there's something, she said, sounding equally horrified and relieved. You think that's what's happened to Jeff isn't normal? He sighed and leaned back in his chair, giving her a level look. I think it sounds similar to a few other cases I've worked on, which makes me genuinely optimistic, he cautioned her. I won't know more until I've had a chance to dig through the details. What do you need to know, she asked. I'll tell you anything I can remember. Ethan flipped to a new page over in his notebook. You said his father died recently, he muttered, looking up at her for confirmation. Yes, she said. Cancer, a couple of weeks back. Do you think that it has something to do with Jeff's disappearance? Ethan suppressed an annoyed look, having long ago developed an immunity to inane and obvious questions of anxious relatives. Deaths and traumatic events are often important, he said vaguely. You said he went to the funeral just before he disappeared. She nodded. He spent the weekend in Cleveland with his brother, going through his father's things. He came back, he seemed fine, and then... She trailed off, lip covering. I just want him to come home. I'll do my best to make that happen, Ethan assured her. With what I know so far, it's looking very promising. She got up and shook Ethan's hand before turning to the door. Mr. Carlyle, she said, thank you for listening. Ethan inclined his head, and seconds later, the door clicked shut behind her. He took the photograph from his notebook and studied it. A smiling, scruffy man, with a leavening of grey in his beard, was posing in front of a white backdrop. A remote trigger for a camera clutched in one hand. Artists, Ethan mustered. Oh, this is going to be such a pain in the ass. The townhouse was modest, understated, and currently vacant, according to the helpful building manager. When Ethan had inquested about potentially touring it, however, the woman's eyes had gone a bit glossy and she had offered to show a different property. The telltale signs of influence had been all over her, which was all the confirmation Ethan needed. He sighed, 
There was some irony in the fact that the muses had no artistry to them, nothing but thoughtless and ham-handed nestling behavior once they scented their peculiar blend of tragedy and talent that worked on them like catnip. Left to her own devices, she'd probably leave Jeff in a few weeks, stumbling, incoherent, and likely divorced. Sometimes, though, the blend was just a little too sweet. The artists, too rare. Muses drank men like that down with the little last drop, leaving only a withered husk and the posthumously immortality of art. Raphael, Zerokal, Seurat, and Pesquet. But not Jeffrey Kleiner, if Ethan could help it. He didn't think the vaguely invuncular photographer was much of a risk of becoming a tragic cornerstone of his field, but he never gambled with paying customers. Ethan took a few steps towards the door and felt the beginnings of a pull on his mind. The warding embrace of the muses shunting him away from the man in a ravenous embrace. He felt the urge to go take a walk, to get a coffee, to do anything but walk through that door. Sighing, he took out a token from his pocket and glanced at the rune carved into it. A prick to his thumb sent blood spilling onto it, and he felt his will take hold, the wood crumbling through his fingers. The urge stopped, but now she knew he was here, and, more importantly, a threat. The air thrummed with tension as he felt the weight of her focus come to bear. Come on, he muttered. You've had your fun. Let this guy go home to his wife. Go nibble on some folks taking a pottery elective. He walked up to the steps and raised his hands to the doorknob, searching through his coat for an unlocking he had stowed there. The door blew off its hinges, throwing him back onto the front walk in a tumble. Ethan could feel the heat pouring from the townhome, crackling through the air in restless surges and crisping the grass. He rolled onto his side and looked up, immediately regretting his cavalier attitude towards the job. A woman stood in the ruined doorway, tall with a runner's belt. Her hair was fiery and cropped short, her skin olive and flawless, eyes as black as the depths of the earth fixed on him with rage. She stalked over to where he lay and glared down at him. You broke my wards, she hissed. You have doomed us. My mistake, Ethan wheezed, trying to raise himself to a seated position. Really sorry. Meant to go to one house down. I'll just see myself out. Her eyes blazed with a dull red light, and she bared her teeth. You've overstepped, mortal, she sneered. I was never drawn to hubris. The woman reached down and grabbed his collar, lifting him bodily off the ground. Ethan tried to pry her hand loose, but her grip was unyielding steel. She drew back her hand to strike, and paused, her head cocked to the side. Tch, she spat. Always annoying ones that are useful. She shifted her grip to the back of his collar and began dragging him up the steps unceremoniously. Hey, wait, Ethan croaked, still reading from the tumble off the steps. Seriously, this is not necessary. I'll leave. I'll refund my client. Shut up, she said tossing him onto the couch and glancing irritably at the ruined door frame. There was a crackling noise as the door shot back into place. The wood knitted together and the hinges reformed with a squeal of twisting metal. Ethan used her brief distraction to look around. The house was sparsely decorated in the soulless manner of a show unit, with thoughtless art and plastic plants scattered around. He could see back to the dining area where a man sat slouched over the dining table, his elbows nudged the bowl of fake fruit jauntily, placing it to its center. Jeff was less tidy than in the photo, but still recognizable. Ethan frowned. Normally the man would be busy with art, so involved in his passions that he could scarcely notice Ethan's presence. This man 
seemed similarly unaware, but he was just brooding. The woman stalked in front of him, interrupting his study of the missing photographer. You, she said, holding out her hand to him. In her palm was a small golden coin engraved with the image of a snake. Take the coin. Ethan looked at the coin skeptically. No offense, but uh, I really don't want to, he said. Her eyes glittered with anger, and she thrust it closer to him. Take it, she hissed. No! It sat in her palm, round and glistening. Ethan noted the centuries of wear on the coin, the faded lettering around the edges. In my experience, he said softly, it's never a good idea to accept that sort of offer that requires a choice made freely. The woman slapped him across the face, hard. Ethan fell over sideways with blood flecking his lips. He lay there for a moment, days, before she hauled him back upright. Her eyes were featureless and dark as she studied him. You're not like the other human, even if you are one of mine, she muttered. Why are you different? Ethan spat blood onto the floor and shook his head. You're one to talk, he muttered. What the hell sort of muse are you? The woman snorted and gave him an irritated glare. Even my useless nieces could have dealt with you easily, she said. Now take the coin, or we'll both die. Ethan blinked. Let's, uh, back up a second, he said. Why are we dying? She gave him a flat look. If it'll hasten matters, she sighed. That man, she said, jerking a thumb at Jeff, is one of mine. His father passed into Hades and left his wealth to his two sons. The other brother took more than was his right, and in what remained this one found my coin. She flexed her fingers, the curling on them into a fist. It's an old story, simple, strong. His own blood sings for justice due to a thief. My justice. Ethan's eyes widened as things clicked together in his head. Divine beings came in all forms with corresponding tastes. The more recently ascendant varieties tended to prefer complex abstracts, like good done unto the needy or the slow corruption of a soul. Some, like muses, fed on byproducts of passion and pain that stem from closer to the root of the human spirit. But there were older creatures who preferred simpler fare. Bloody retribution for the wronged was a primordial impulse. Meet for things that were born from blood under eternal starlight's night. Ethan looked up at the fury and gulped. So, um, he said, I'm guessing there's an issue with the justice. This dude, she snorted, the father had more than my coin in his trove. What the brother stole was trouble. What sort of trouble? Ethan asked. You mistake me, she sighed. It was trouble, disorder, a small flute in form. Ethan blinked. A flute, he said, feeling ice trickle down his spine. As in a pan flute. The fury nodded. You understand, she said. The brothers fear my retribution feeds it. With every moment it bleeds into paranoia, mania, panic. Ah, shit, Ethan said. Phobophages were the worst sort of trouble simply because their aspect was so contagious. Left unchecked, a feeding frenzy could easily reach pandemic levels. A literal fear god turned loose in the heart of a city could mean the death of thousands. Again astute, she said, holding up the coin. So take it. Ethan drew back, looking at her curiously. What justice is there to do on my behalf? he asked. Nobody's stolen anything from me. She looked at him as her eyes bled a dusky red once more. Three are my domains, she whispered. Infidelity, theft, and breaking of oaths. No, Ethan said, feeling sick knot in his gut. No, no, absolutely not. An oath sworn, she insisted. An oath was broken. 
I can feel that marks of that on your soul, the scars from where you were wronged. Allow me to take up your vengeance. She loomed over him, seeming to fill the confines of the small room. The oath was mighty, so was its thundering. So will I be. None will stand in our path. He shook his head. You can't, he croaked. Some wrongs can't be righted. A low, chittering laugh scuttled through the room at the corner of his hearings. He sat up with a start. The colors of the room began to waver, and the fury turned to stare at the door with a hiss. He's coming, she said. You broke my wards, and now he is our scent. She held out her hand, proffering the coin incessantly. He'll die, as will all those near here. Take it. You don't realize what you're asking, Ethan mumbled. I know how this works. I've seen my share of divine justice. A lick of shadow flickered out of place. Afar into the distance, a woman began screaming. The fury's eyes narrowed, but she did not interrupt him. You would get power enough to right the wrong. That's how this sort of thing works, she nodded. That is the contract, she confirmed. The power invested in the oath becomes mine. Ethan sighed and slumped back into the chair. Then there's no way I can take the coin, he said. Fool, she spat. You would condemn the city to death. She gestured as the straight lines of the wall began to warp and light from the windows stretched out into glaring purple rays. Chaos is expanding its reach. Will you let your pride bury thousands, millions? She glared at him. I have a sister who will come for you, murderer. Your name, Ethan said. Give me your name and your solemn oath that you'll only use the power to seal the fruit. The fury swelled with rage and loomed close to him. You dare ask this of me, she whispered. Her voice like a bare knife at his desk. Will you let your bride bury thousands? Ethan asked innocently. Millions! Must you meet your sister? Impudent wretch, she snarled. Watched words she might have said next were torn away as the door burst off its hinges for the second time that afternoon, hurling into the foyer as little more than a cloud of splinters. Silhouetted in the doorway was a man, a rictus grin on his face and dancing color about his brow. He stood oddly, stilted and warped as he advanced into the room. Empty eyes turned towards the two of them, and when his head moved, Ethan could hear the broken vertebra grinding against each other. The coin, she cried out. Please, your name, Ethan replied firmly, and your oath. The figure in the doorway raised his hands. Ripples of sickening, colorless distortion fell languidly from his fingers, drawing gougers in the floor as he tottered towards them. The fury went pale, then snarled a curse as she produced a small knife from her pocket. She raised a drop of blood from her finger and pressed it to her lips before putting Ethan in for a long, angry kiss. His eyes shot open wide, but there was little he could do to free himself from her vice-like embrace. She broke the kiss and put her blood-stained lips against his ear, whispering a single word. Ethan looked at her and nodded. With trembling fingers, he took the coin from her palm. There was a blast of light that blew through the wavering shadows of panic, like so much gauze, temporarily casting every surface into a blinding white. When Ethan's vision cleared, he saw the fury, but she wasn't really, not anymore. Golden wings sprouted from her back and an nimbus of light radiated from her brow. Her nondescript clothing had turned to white robes and gathered at her waist with a belt of fine silver. In one hand she held a sword, and Ethan knew its name was Judgment. She raised the blade and pointed at the avatar of Panic, who flinched, 
Radiance streamed from the sword's point and washed away its shadowed countenance, leaving only broken and bloody corpse on the floor. The brother, clutching the shattered remains of a flute, Ethan felt the grip of its fear slacken as the physical focus dissipated. The Fury's face was set in grim triumph, but even saw in her eyes slowly turn upwards. She looked high up. Eyes of molten gold seemed to fix on something only she could see. Her grip on the sword tightened. No! Ethan shouted. You can't! There is judgment to be rendered, she said, her voice echoing through the room. Pale light began to shine from the blade. Ethan gritted his teeth and forced his way closer, shielding his eyes from the glowing light. You swore! said. You swore an oath, Majeria, she who punishes traitors. Another step. He could smell burning hair as the light intensified. Majeria, Oathkeeper, I name you twice. He could feel the pain searing at his flesh as the light shone still brighter from the sword. Majeria, Oathkeeper, he cried. Three times I name you. I invoke the covenant sealed in blood. There was another flash, and Ethan was flung back to collide with a smoldering couch. When the purple smudges faded from his vision, he could see Majeria's slumped form on the floor, surrounded by ashes and scorched feathers. He staggered over and knelt beside her. She drew a raging breath, shuddered with each inhalation. He tilted her head up and pressed two fingers to her forehead, murmuring softly. After a moment, her eyes snapped open and fixed on him, tears welling up at the corners. I did not believe you, she said quietly, that an oath like that would be sworn or broken. An oath given by... Ethan touched her lips, halting her. By someone who must remain as they are, he said gently. Majeria looked at him for a long moment before sitting up and shaking her head. Every now and then it occurs to me that the decisions to create humanity was a poor one, she grumbled. Before you there was order, hierarchy. We had our roles... If someone was given the power to do a thing, it was because that thing was meant to be done by their hand. To have the power and to choose not to use it, that is uniquely human madness. Ethan shrugged. Maybe there's a power in choice not made, just as there is power in oaths not kept, he said. She nodded, then straightened up. Perhaps, she allowed, but know this mortal, some choices cannot be unmade. She bent down to pick up the small, white-handed dagger with a golden blade. You have opened the door of vengeance, and its instrument is created, one that is capable of meting out the justice that is your prerogative. Ethan stared at the small blades, eyes widening. Wait, what? he said. That blade is a big fecking deal. I don't know how it's even still here in physical form. You definitely don't want to... She held up her hand and cut him off. It's your justice so it'll not be used save by your leave, she sighed. But the option will remain, now that you have invoked it. Judgment for the slight against you is one step closer, now and to eternity. He sat back down on the burnt couched days. It doesn't seem like that's something we should be able to do, he said weakly. Don't assume that the upstarts of yours know everything, she said, a faint smile touching her lips. She sat down beside him, turning the dagger over delicately in her fingers. There are secrets that were made and kept, things claimed long ago in the lightless dark. For me and my kin, the path is constrained, limited, yet absolute within its boundaries. Ethan cocked his head and looked at her, then at the dagger she was idly flipping in her hands. Majeria, he said, 
Has anyone ever told you that you're a bit terrifying? Yet I did not create this, she said, waving the dagger in his face. This is why humans were a mistake. The unconstrained path leads to strange destinations. She smiled at him, the expression stopping while short of her eyes. Also, if you let my name touch your lips again, I'll kill you. He then smiled back. How about Meg? he asked. I will eat your liver, she warned. There was a groan from the kitchen, and Ethan looked somewhat abashed. Shoot, almost forgot about Jeff, he muttered. Listen, I'm not a big fan of liver, he said, but after I drop Jeff off, uh, do you want to get some coffee? Assuming nobody's burned down the shop, that is. Her eyes narrowed. I sprang forth from the sky's blood, spilled into the wine-dark sea by Titan's hand, she said. I do not go get some coffee. It is not my path. Ethan shook his head. Well, uh, it is definitely mine, he said. Other stands, if you're interested. Majeria looked around the scorched apartment, her eyes lingering on the debris and chaos scattered everywhere. A mistake, she sighed. Definitely a mistake. Ethan walked back into the room with Jeff leaning heavily on him. Is that a yes? he asked. She rolled her eyes. Come on, she said. I'll help you get him into the car. She moved to Jeff's other side and grabbed him under the shoulder, lifting the man up easily. Even so, her steps carried greater weight than before. The dagger hung at her side, shining bright, and every time Ethan saw a hint of its light, he could not help but shiver. End of story. 1940 Story number one. Moral Weirdia, written by Marilyn of Many. Bones are body horror, the tentacle alien told me. Not that I would volunteer such information, mind you, but you did ask. I did, I agreed, lifting another crate. That's really funny, honestly. What about them is disturbing? Murr twisted his blue-black tentacles in a way that looked anxious. Just the idea of something rigid inside your flesh, he said with a wiggly shudder. No matter how you move, it won't move with you. Like your own body is fighting back. He wrapped his tentacles around a crate. I've had nightmares about stiffness like that. Wow, I said, as I set my crate on top of the others. I'm sorry to hear that. All I can tell you is that bones aren't an enemy to us. There's something dependable and strong that hold us up and make everything possible. Mo shoved his crate into place. I suppose you need a positive relationship with your own disturbing parts, he said, with a twitch of his hind tentacles that was probably the equivalent of shaking his head. Since the strong arm's pointy squid head was the majority of their body, they didn't seem to go in for human-style nods. Well, sure. Same as you, I said, checking the hovercraft for more crates. You know most humans find tentacles creepy, right? I have heard, he said with a smug little smile. No nods, but yes to smiles. With a mouth in the right place, even, I was privately glad that he had a mouth on the front of his head instead of hidden amongst his tentacles like an earth cephalopod. I was debating whether to tell him that when a crewmate of an entirely different body type walked in on clicking feet, I pointed at him. What about exoskeletons? I asked Murr. These stop beside the cart. What about exoskeletons? He demanded. He struck a pose out of an intergalactic fashion show, letting the ship's lights play on his vivid purple carapace, while he snapped a pinch of arms, are you Squishy's uh, jealous? Sure, let's go with that, Murr told him before turning to me. Exoskeletons are different from bones. 
They're like an exosuit, a protective case for the natural softness. Z held the pose. A glorious one. Yes, Z, you're very pretty. Murr sounded more than a little patronizing, but Z didn't seem to mind. That is the proper amount of respect, the bug alien said. But he relaxed the grasp on the cart handles with his pinches and towed it out the room. I will return with more freeze-dried foodstuffs. Make sure you tie those crates down. Yeah, we've got it, Murr told him. Make sure you get the right ones. Two of the three shipments look similar. This isn't obvious to one with such excellent color vision as myself. Murr made little popping noises that passed for laughter and turned towards the adjustable netting. He threw one end to me. We spent the next few minutes fastening things down into industry standards, which still seemed a little excessive. I'd never seen a ship's anti-gravity fail yet, but I suppose meteor impacts were possible. Some of those buggers were much faster than I'd ever expected before I got into space. We're going to need a replacement for this one, Merce said, fingering a hole in the net. Does it count as fingering if it's used as a tentacle tip? Tentacling? Just doesn't sound right. He set it aside near the door. Do we have enough for now? I asked. Yes, probably, he said. We just can't forget on the next restocking trip. Hey, paint! He called after someone who just passed the doorway. Paint, she said, replying with her own name where I would have said yes or what. Her full name was Painted Sunset. But since this sounded way too much like a captain's name, Piercing Sunlight, she just stuck to paint. She poked us now out of mottled orange scales around the doorframe. All polite curiosity. Can you put another net on the shopping list? Murr asked. Big or small? Big, please. Got it. One question for you. What's that? Paint spun to stick her tail out into the doorway. She had something taped to it. A stapler. Whatever it was, it was clacking like a tiny crocodile when she moved. Have you seen any tasty fish around here? She said in a growly voice. Roar! With a long-suffering sigh, Murr told her, No, but there are probably some in the kitchen. Thanks. Paint spun again and stuck her head out. Was it scary? I think it needs eyes to be really scary. Murr sighed. That was good, I said. Eyes would be better. Hey, do you have access to googly eyes out here? The little sticky ones? No. What are those? Paint asked, walking into the room. They sound fun. They are, I told her. I used to like putting two on my hand and making a little face like this. I demonstrated, wrapping my forefinger around my thumb and moving both together like a talking mouth. Hello, I don't have teeth. Paint thought that this was the best thing ever, and despite Murr's eye-rolling maturity, he couldn't take his eyes off the display. That is unsettlingly convincing, he admitted. Even without eyes, if I saw that sneak around a corner and start talking to me, I believe we had a stowaway of a species I'd never seen before. He pointed three tentacles at my face. Do not do that as a prank, nor I'll throw your shoes on the airlock. I know you treasure those. It's not that I treasure them, I said. The floor is just cold without them, and I could step on something sharp. Yeah, so, that's life, the squid-like alien said. You don't see me wearing an exosuit about the ship just because the floor is uh, cold. Hey, do that hand thing one more time, Paint said. I think I've almost got it. Her scaly orange fingers were too short to manage the same effect, but she was trying. More crates, announced Z from the hallway. Make some emptiness. The three of us moved aside for him to direct the hovercraft into place. Paint gushed about the hand thing. It looks so convincing. I can't do it right. Show him. I did, 
feeding a bit silly in front of his unblinking massive eyes. His antenna held still, making his expression hard to read. Hello, I said. I am a mouth. That's not a mouth, he declared. Before I could say yeah, that's the point, he stepped back from the cart with a flourish and tucked his head low against his shoulders and bent his pincher arms into a terrifying facility of a gaping maw lined with teeth. Paint squeak, Merce snapped a tentacle against the floor. Wow, I said. Yeah, googly eyes have nothing on that. Murr pointed at him. I see you also have a potential prank that you should not pull. At the same time, Paint exclaimed, You have to show sunlight. Murr gave her a look. Do not terrify the captain. No, no, she'll love it. I'm pretty sure she's busy. Paint rubbed her chin as Z resumed his normal posture. It wouldn't take long, but yeah, she is busy. Then a time, oh, and you have to show off your thing too, she said, pointing at me. Burr started to naysay, but I said, Oh, like a talent show. I have all the talent, he announced. Paint was delighted. Murr waved his tentacles about and went back to work, while Z launched into a story of the time he scared off a predator with his false jaws trek. Come on, let's tell everybody about the talent show, Paint said. This'll be great. She waved Z to follow, and we went, still talking. Murr grumbled, Dinner is going to be interesting. I hope it doesn't put anyone off their food. I'll try not to do anything uh, bone-related, I said. I appreciate the restraint. After a moment of handling crates, I asked, Did you know our blood is made inside our bones? Oh, that is so much worse. Uh, I may just get sick ahead of time. End of story. Story number two. Humans are actually boring. Written by Luke was not here. I mean, the constant bombardment of humans are terrifying. Hide your children, Aura. Did you hear what Rue did last night? Or worse yet, you know they can insert things that another species can do, but because it's a human, it's suddenly weird. But if you've ever met one before, they're not that interesting. I mean, they even look like us. More than half of the council are bipedal, two-eyed, sexually dimorphic things. Yeah, we don't look exactly the same, but uh, none of us do. They all are so boring, and it's wonderful. A lot of the time, they just sit around and do nothing. Nothing at all. Kids lay on the grass and look at the sky, trying to make stories of the shapes they see. Old people sit on rocking chairs on their porches, on even hotter days, drinking iced tea and talking about the weather. It's beautiful. At night, they huddle around campfires telling stories. That, for the life of me, I can't tell if they're true or not. They talk about the most inane and asinine subjects. Whether they could beat up an emperor penguin or not. Whatever in the god name a penguin is. Or dozens of other animals. They could most certainly not beat up. Kids throw snowballs at each other. Tell tall tales that are literally impossible. And they believe it. Because they're kids. Because for a time, everything is true to a kid. And I was like that, and so were you. Yeah, I don't laugh like them, but I feel joy like that. I see beauty like them. I just have different words. And sometimes I don't say anything. And my gods, are those moments magical? They just sit there, or they walk, and they don't say a thing. That's boring, and it doesn't matter to them. They don't need to talk. Them being together is enough. Silence in good company 
is never awkward. Yes, they can do so much more than they already have, but warriors aren't all they are. They're fathers and mothers, sisters and brothers, friends and family, introverts and extroverts, funny and smart. They are so much more. More than a monolith. Each of them has a unique personality and is special as every other human. They are like us, yeah. Them overthrowing the queen was cool and all, but have you ever tried to just getting a drink with one? End of story. 1941 Value Written by I am Hype TFS Humanity defied categorization. They were frail until they weren't. Weak until they decided not to be. Prey that mingled with the predators of their world and predators who championed the cause of those who would be their prey off-world. All other enlightened species would seek out the unenlightened races and uplift them if they saw the potential for them to become powerful allies and supporters in the future. Raising up a species was tedious, expensive, and never a short-term benefit. So these choices were made after intense debate and consideration. But humanity seemed determined to buck every trend they came across, including this one. They looked at the races that had been overlooked and passed by, and actively pursued those who had been determined to be too much work for too little value. While their counterparts handed out technology and signed treaties to make sure the uplifted species developed in a direction that would directly benefit them down the line, humanity threw themselves into the task far more deeply, intermingling with the races and leading them by the hand through these various stages of accelerated development. They took note of the strengths and desired pursuits of their new charges and helped them expand their understandings in those areas. This and the number of races they chose to uplift at the same time, sometimes up to four to five at once, would have caused the complete economic collapse of other races who considered themselves on equal footing with humanity. But humanity had long since taken to the stars, and the population boom that had accompanied their debut on the galactic stage showed no signs of stopping. Through the sheer number of taxpayers and their ability to seemingly adapt to just about anything given enough time, making them borderline invaluable, it would actually be impressive if they managed to deal the significant financial blow. This was a far cry from even just several centuries ago, when corruption and greed almost destroyed them several times over. All this being the case, humanity had a few true allies in the galaxy. Sure, they had peace treaties and agreements allowing humans to travel and work amongst the various races, but they were considered too eccentric, too unpredictable to be considered a steady ally in the eyes of their fellow races. They could be spurred to anger and violence at the slightest provocation and be overcome merely by the cuteness of another race almost within the same breath. This made them a target for the warmongers of society initially. But they soon found out that humanity's wrath was not merely for show and individual races faced crushing defeats at the hands of a furious humanity. These defeats left sour tastes in the would-be conquerors' mouths, and as the decades passed, they reached out to one another, forming bonds through resentment and the desire for revenge and building up their armies once more to finally defeat the hated humanity. But they were still fearful that something might go awry, so they waited for an opportunity, watching for the perfect moment when a fatal hole could be seen in humanity's defenses. And eventually... Their patience paid off, 
A series of brutal attacks across several far-flung outposts had stirred the beast in humanity's heart, and the bulk of their fleets had been sent out to obliterate the offending force, leaving behind not an insignificant force, but spread out to safeguard the numerous planets under humanity's control. It was this moment the warmongers had been waiting for, the moment they had spent years painstakingly sneaking more and more ships to the edges of humanity's heart, the Soul System. Like black tendrils, lines of ships poured into solar systems, streaking towards Earth and smashing through humanity's defensive lines with sheer numbers until they all converged around the green and blue jewel. They had finally done it, and they couldn't wait to see the human ambassador begging them not to destroy them. Who knew? Maybe if he groveled enough, they would leave a few hundred thousand people alive. After all, survivors would spread the message better than statistics and reports. Just as they were about to hail Earth's capital, a message rang out in every single ship surrounding the planet, and their hollow screens flickered as the images changed to face of a human ambassador. His expression angry, but far less concerned than the invaders were comfortable with. I won't embarrass either of us by suggesting you don't know exactly what you are doing, so I'll keep it brief. We are willing to accept your unconditional surrender. You have until my next meeting, so about... The human checked his watch. Oh, 47 minutes and 19 seconds. After that, none of the ships in orbit of our planet we left intact, and we'll accept no responsibility for the lives of any crew members aboard the vessels. Make the correct decision. The warmongers were startled by the clear and apparently easy hack of all their systems, but they tried to comfort themselves by saying that if it was an actual threat, the humans wouldn't have simply sent a warning. They had to be bluffing. But it still gave them pause, and they decided to wait until the deadline to see exactly what humanity had in store. Using that time to re-inflate their egos and regain their shaken sense of superiority. When the human appeared on the screens again, this time the leader of the warmongers didn't let him speak first. We have your planet at our mercy. Your fleets are on the other side of the galaxy, and the few allies you have cannot possibly make it here in time to be of any help. Give us your unconditional surrender, and uh, we might leave a fraction of your population alive. The human initially showed no interest in the alien's words, but looked up when he mentioned their lack of allies. He bared his teeth in that unsettling human smile, and leaned back in his chair before responding. Is that where this courage comes from? Well, I can't call sneaking into our system when the bulk of our forces away is... Uh, courage. But I'll be kind and call it clever instead. No, I use the word very loosely. It's true that we don't have many true allies. It's mostly a network of partnerships and mutually beneficial relationships with no true camaraderie behind them. But if you did all of this thinking that we were alone, I'm afraid that you're sorely mistaken. You see, while we might not have many allies, we have made many friends. And I'll leave it to you to decide which has more value. Do your worst. I have a meeting to get to. And with that, the screen went blank. In a fit of rage, being belittled and insulted despite having this clear upper hand, the warmonger leader ordered all ships to open fire on Earth. A crazed look of anticipation in his eyes as he waited to see the smoking husk they would make out of humanity's homeworld. Energy weapons powered up and fired, filling the skies around Earth with blinding flashes of deadly light. But the imminent destruction never came. The bolts of plasma struck a previously invisible barrier. The impacts rippling out like the surface of a lake during a heavy downpour. 
but none of the attacks managed to break through, seeming to simply dissipate after the initial strike. But the energy had to go somewhere, didn't it? That was when the warmongers noticed the shield was becoming increasingly vibrant, emitting a glow so bright that they could hardly see the planet's surface clearly anymore. His heart dropped into his stomach. The leader desperately ordered a ceasefire. But it was too late. Earth's barrier, which had absorbed all of the energy of the attacking fleet's barrage, released it all back to them in the form of a blindingly bright wave that crashed against and shattered the countless vessels threatening her. Smaller vessels were essentially obliterated by the wave, leaving naught but scrap in its wake as it barreled towards the mid-sized cruisers. Cracking and splintering the hulls as it passed through before reaching the flagship and dreadnoughts at their rear. To their credit, none of the large vessels were destroyed, but the shields were immediately expended and the feedback of energy through their systems fried virtually everything, most importantly, their engines and weapons. They were sitting ducks, waiting to be slaughtered. But by who? They had swept through Earth's defense fleet on their way to the planet, and there were no enemy vessels left to take advantage of their helplessness. Grasping onto this tiny glimmer of hope, their leader and the captains of the remaining operational ships ordered the engines to be repaired as quickly as possible. Safety be damned. The only thing each and every one of them wanted was to get as far away from the terrifying humans as possible. If they managed to scrape by with their lives this time around, they would never so much as darken the doorstep of a human colony ever again. Trying to leave after all the effort you went through to get here? That seems like a bit of a waste, doesn't it? You should see things through to the end, don't you think? The human ambassador's voice taunted, ringing out across the surviving ships. Their hollow screens were in no condition to display the visual, but they could hear the smile in his voice. A brilliant piece of technology, wasn't it? The ability to turn the tide of a no-win situation in the flash of light. Honestly, I wish that we could claim credit for it, but uh, it was a gift from a friend. You remember mentioning that we didn't have many allies, and you seemed quite proud of yours, yes? Well, the truth is, you and everyone else, you were busy looking for allies that you forgot to make friends. Not a single one of your uh, allies would give given away technology like this so selfishly. But a friend... Now that's a special bond. It transcends treaties and agreements and pacts and all the legal and political bullshit. The census, which had only just been restored in the leader's flagship, screamed out in warnings of wormholes were ripped open all around Earth and several ragtag fleets of mostly mid-sized cruisers and smaller fighters poured out, almost like a swarm of tiny piranhas before a group of great white sharks when compared to the dreadnoughts. But these sharks were toothless and the piranhas smelled blood. The fleet barreled through the debris field that used to be the warmongers' fleet, their shields absorbing the impacts of the smaller pieces of scrap and releasing blasts of energy to force larger ones out of the path on their way to attack the disabled foes. The leader stood in front of the viewport of his ship in utter shock, even as the floor beneath his feet was rocked by explosions, and the small vessels took more and more bite-sized chunks out of his vessel. He recognized these insignias, these symbols emblazoned proudly on the sides of these otherwise unimpressive ships. The unenlightened, the ones they left behind, the ones they saw no value in, the ones no one had, no one except the humans. The last words the leader heard before his final massive explosion engulfed the bridge of his flagship 
and claimed his life was spoken with pride and disdain by the human ambassador. Friendship is worth its weight in palladium, and you couldn't see its value. Shame on you! End of story. 1942. Story number one. War is their game. Written by Gaza. Commander Uvan Thront, making an official report to the Ministry of Planetary Warfare with recommendations on future activity with the new native species, the humans, as they call themselves. Three galactic cycles ago, translating to six solar rotations of the local system, we made Planetfall undetected onto their planet Earth on a standard scouting mission and subjugation mission by order of Admirals Mustan Kool and Hunklan Fortrol. Upon surface contact, regulations were followed for the swift capture of a nearby clan, named at the time New York, albeit with higher difficulty than expected. Sticking to procedure, a quick roundup of the tribe as well as the coordinated blitz attack to remove the armed presence within was executed, resulting in the total of six million native casualties, two million captured slaves of varying quality, several hundred captives who were sent for processing and information extraction, as well as a few stragglers, no doubt making a mad scramble for the safety of a nearby clan. Soon after this, it was brought to my attention that our initial reports of the populace were incorrect. This was no mere Class II tribe world that we could easily take, and we were uninformed of some of the odd behaviors of the natives. Primarily, the presence of the rules of war was not a sign of weakness as we, the scouting party, thought. It was a result of these humans being so adept at the art of death that they invented arbitrary laws to make the game harder. After an unfruitful extraction of information from the governing body of the clan and the captured armed forces, it was decided that the broadcast of the execution of their leader would be held planet-wide in order to break the morale of the people and make future excursions easier than the admittedly difficult capture of the first tribe. This was an error. Rather than break their will, we had galvanized it. They set aside centuries of infighting and disputes in order to fight against us. A most rare and peculiar response. Within a local cycle, our progress had been brought to a near halt. They had captured and reverse-engineered a fighter craft. This led to a more stable space combat than their part. After three cycles, they had mastered our ship, weapon and shield tech to almost exacting standards. On cycle four, we learned what humans could do when the rules of engagement, as they called them, are disregarded after a strike from orbit took down a med center of the weak and old. They proved elite in their combative skills with relatively little training. During local cycle five, they displayed what they called enhanced interrogation. Plain and simple, they had rescued a process slave and decided our torture needed an educational update. The methods they used, the barbarism and efficiency somehow blended into a nightmarish display of no less than three previously undiscovered ways of our kind to feel pain. Those that were sent back are still unresponsive. In local cycle six, they developed warp tech all of their own efforts, even seemingly improving on our designs. This gave the metaphorical Schlugnar fight. By the end of cycle, they were making a full astral assault on base station Gamma. So now, here I sit, with a Terran Alliance soldier pressing a weapon at my back, watching as I warn you all. What we thought of as a Class II tribal world had ascended to the rank of a Class V warrior civilization, only trapped on their home world by its unreasonable gravitational pull. Otherwise, it is my assessment that with access to galactic resources and their rate of advancement combined with the likely removal of self-imposed rules of war, 
they will become a Class 9 Conqueror race within seven standard galactic cycles. If they continue the propensity for the gathering of allies off-world, it is with no doubt that this is the seed world of no less than a Class 14 Emperor civilization. So I warn you, we must seek peace, for war is their game, and we are surely played by different rules. Commander Ovanth Runt, Expeditionary Leader of Scouting Group 7. May the light of the Elder shine upon my end. End of story. Story number two. Lips Without Teeth, written by I am the Hype TFS. It was a derogatory phase used to describe humans. Its literal meaning referred to how humans hid their teeth behind closed lips when they smiled while interacting with other races. Since most found the bearing of teeth to be a sign of aggression, or in extreme cases, even a threat. They did this to be polite, and at first it was generally appreciated by those they met. And this politeness eventually extended towards most interspecies interactions, from social to political. The humans are very considerate of other cultures and ways of life, a stark contrast to what they knew of humanity's history. They had expected a fierce race, thirsty for conflict and blood, and to be fair, when they first took to the stars, their exploratory vessels had military escorts. But times had changed, and the humans continuously scaled back their military presence. They would never abandon it entirely, of course, but the size of their standing forces could usually be measured by what it would take to defend their current territory, and if there was excess, it would be repurposed. Over time, the galaxy fell into a misconception that humanity had defanged itself upon joining true civilization. This mistaken opinion went unchallenged by the human ambassador when their fellow Federation members subtly probed for their take on the matter as formed a small bit of dismissive laughter. Nearly a century later, and the phrase had now reached peak usage, and though it was usually not said directly to a human's face, its second meaning was clear. They took the humans for cowards, a race that chose the path of least resistance in conflict and argument and avoided war at all costs. The galaxy saw them as a race who, if they had any courage before, they had surely lost it by now. So, when the Ardriac, a warmongering empire from another galaxy, invaded with enough forces to threaten the galaxy at large, no one expected much from the humans. Their technological advances were amazing to the point of disbelief at times, and their individuals were impressive on their own. But clearly, they weren't built to handle war. Not anymore. So when humanity volunteered itself as the galaxy's vanguard to hold the line until the other races could muster the full might of their forces, it took everyone off guard. But what truly shocked them to the core was how quickly the humans overturned every misconception they previously held. Some races had never even heard of the war economy before. After all, most of them balanced their economies with both consumer and military needs in mind, so there was never a need to alter the systems already in place. But they now watched as luxury cruise production lines now pumped out battle cruisers. How hundreds of personal spacecraft businesses now churned out hordes of fighters. Any form of consumer production that was not absolutely required shifted to provide for a war effort and from batteries and fuel for energy weapons to ammunition for kinetic arms. They watched as humanity pulled back their lips and revealed their hidden teeth. 
The main routes between the systems now swarm to the might of humanity's military. A plague of heavily armed locusts that picked up more and more members with each human system it passed through, before making its way past their ally planets. Senses screamed out warnings and alerts to the owners of these worlds as thousands upon thousands of ships roared past daily and even after the bulk of the fleet combined. Hundreds of reinforcements came through in its wake as soon as they came off their respective production lines with crews ready to man them on standby for the moment they were battle ready. Their allies weren't the only ones caught by surprise by humanity's decisiveness. Having sent spies to scout out the new galaxy they planned to conquer, the Etioch found themselves under the same mistaken impression and were fully unprepared for the immediate and violent response as massive waves of enemy vessels dropped out of FTL and crashed against their forces. From the outset, the invaders found themselves on the defensive, with the human forces driving them almost back to the edge of the galaxy through sheer ferocity. The human fleet was made up of primarily medium to small spacecraft, so while they wouldn't be able to strike any serious blows to the Atriox fleet, they had far more mobility and would be able to bleed their opponents of strength. From the start, the goal was not victory, but simply to stall. To hold the line until the heavy cruisers, the destroyers of the Federation, could be mustered and arrive en masse. Even the true firepower of the Federation fleet finally arrived, the enemy couldn't completely ignore the swarm in favor of the larger threats, because the human fighters were dogged in their efforts to bring down communication towers and shield generators. And being blind, deaf, and naked in front of a heavy neutron cannons of the destroyers was nothing short of a death sentence. Eventually, the Atriac managed to destroy one of the heavy Federation vessels, but they couldn't celebrate because humanity had made them pay dearly for it, crippling the communications of two of their own and severely weakening the integrity of another's shields. They did their best to make a comeback, and the losses of the Federation side were not small. But ever since the initial assault, the invaders hadn't been able to gain a steady foothold in this battle. Finally, when only about half of their original fleet remained, they accepted the futility of this invasion and jumped out the largest and most important vessels, leaving behind others as sacrifices so they could escape. Humanity was relentless in their pursuit of the stragglers, hunting them all along the galaxy's edge until they were certain none remained. Even then, though, humanity didn't pull back its forces like the rest. For the next several years, the Great Swarm patrolled the galaxy borders, waiting to see if the Atriac wanted to try their luck again. During this time, there was discontent amongst the other races that such a force was traveling the galaxy, completely unchecked, but none were brave enough to confront the humans. The race they had labeled toothless cowards had bared their deadly fangs at the enemy, and they were nearly as terrified as their foes had been. Aside from the lack of courage that prevented them from voicing their concerns, there was a sense of shame that they had severely underestimated and disrespected such a fierce ally. Humanity had been the first ones in, and while everyone else had already gone back, they still hadn't pulled back. They prowled the edge in force like a pack of wolves, their muzzles still freshly bloodied from their last kill, daring anyone who had the courage to try to take them on a second time. 
Five years to the day since humanity clashed with the invaders, they finally pulled back their forces to the heart of human space. The production lines had slowly been transitioning back towards consumer goods for some time now, but now the vessels of war had returned to the very lines on which they were built to be dismantled and have their materials repurposed. Another year passed and humanity had returned to its pre-war state, and aside from the monuments erected to honor those who had lost their lives in the conflict, one could be forgiven for thinking that the fury and violence displayed by the humans had been nothing more than a collective dream. But the galaxy would never make that mistake again. They had now experienced what it was like to fight alongside these terrifying humans, and they never wanted to see what it was like to go against them. So they silently thanked their gods that the humans chose not to bear their fangs at them, to abandon the brutality they now saw come so easily to them, to choose peace instead of war, to smile with lips without teeth. End of story. 1943. My first Christmas written by Sean Advanson. I should have listened when the Union rep told me I should wait for another navigator. Any navigator. As long as they weren't human. Too much trouble, they said. No, I was in too much of a hurry and hired on the human. It is important to me that I am a good captain. To that end, I have accumulated a set of rules, guidelines, if you will, to keep me moving in that direction. I've written them all down in the tablet. 68 rules so far. Rule 31. Allow the crew to express themselves when it does not interfere with the operation of the vessel or the morale of other crew. Now, there were multicolored lights that served no purpose strung up through the passageway, decorations of giant ice crystals on the bulkheads, and one of a fat human in some sort of ceremonial garb on the bulkhead in the mess. The human's cabin had been piling up with small, brightly colored boxes. At every station, she left with another of the crew to go shopping and would return with more stuff that got piled in her cabin. At the last station, she'd been ecstatic to return with a replica Terran tree. As soon as the human's contract expired, I'd let her go and hire another navigator, even one fresh out of the academy. Perhaps then, my life could return to some semblance of normal. I absentmindedly groomed my mandibles with my forelimbs. Not exactly good manners, but I was never known for that. Hey, Cap, you are right? the human asked. Why do you ask? It's just that when you start grooming your mandibles, it usually means you're moody or thinking hard. She turned towards me with a strange face. Humans were in that weird place between predator and prey, sharing features with both. When they looked right at you with their binocular vision, though, they felt more like complete predators, tickling some long-forgotten part of my hindbrain. Navigator Katerina, what is the meaning of the lights and water ice crystals? Cap, I told you before, just call me Cat. The lights and snowflakes and Santa are decorations for Christmas. Never, Cat. What is it? Some human thing, I assume. The way that you are hoarding in your cabin, I'd think that it was a nesting display. But I haven't read any such thing with humans. They gave me a disturbing thought, and I did my best to keep my forelimbs and antenna from giving it away. Is it a nesting display? Are you going into heat? Why, Captain Hintulia of the Creela Hin... No, you don't mind if I call you Hen. If you think you've embarrassed yourself, she laughed. While it might be taken by some as a threat display, I knew that it was a gesture of mirth. She regained her composure and ran one of her fleshy hands across my shoulder cap carapace. No, Hen. Humans don't have seasons to go in heat like some. I'm not hoarding. I'm just storing presents away until Christmas. 
Again, what is it? I'd just broken one of my rules for being a good captain. Rule 12. Don't raise your voice in anger or frustration. She shrunk down in her seat. Sorry, Captain. No, no, I'm sorry, Cat. I shouldn't have raised my voice. I settled my wing carapaces and calmed myself. Please tell me what Christmas is. Christmas is a midwinter festival, she said. He started out with pagans that worshipped the rebirth of the sun and got picked up by a few other religions. Then a really popular religion picked up on it as a birth date of their messiah. From there it turned into a more secular commercial holiday. A decorated tree, like the pagans, and a saint turned into a symbol of commerce. Stuff like that. Mostly it's an excuse for everyone to get together in a dark of winter, eat too much, and exchange gifts. A religious holiday then? For some. Not for me. As the only human aboard, are you giving all these gifts to yourself? She straightened up and her face brightened. No, silly. Those are everyone's gifts. The rest of the crew are excited for it. I was going to loop you in on the next port, but you're the last one to join in. Why would you want to celebrate a human midwinter festival on a ship where you're the only human and there is no winter or summer or even days and nights? Well, I've been on the crew for half a cycle and everyone's made me feel like a little part of the family. It just seemed right. She placed her hand on my shoulder carapace again. I'll make you a deal. Join us for this and if you don't like it, we'll cancel the plans for the other holidays. Another holidays? I asked. I hated to admit it, but her fleshy hands felt good on my carapace. Warm, smooth, and I could feel her heartbeat. We decided that we'd celebrate one holiday from everyone's homeworld once a cycle. That's currently seven holidays per cycle, unless we hire on someone from another world. I thought about it. The human hadn't been nearly as disastrous as I'd been led to believe they were. She was a competent navigator, even finding us a path around a border skirmish that let us get to our destination on time with the fuel we had. Deal, I said, holding out my manipulator for the human's handshake gesture. The next station we stopped at for refueling. She invited me to go shopping with her. The experience was at once unnerving and relaxing somehow, as she walked me through the hustle and bustle of the station's shopping quarter. She pointed out trinkets and knickknacks, naming which crew member each was perfect for. It was fun until she said, You should decide who you want to give a gift to. Nobody is forced to participate, and no one will take it badly if you don't give them something. But if there's anyone you feel you should give a gift to, now's the time to get it. That sounded fine and well, but I couldn't, as a good captain, only give gifts to specific crew members. Rule 28. Never allow favoritism to affect your actions or choices. I would either need to give everyone a gift, or no one. Rule 60. Anything that improves morale without jeopardizing the ship or the mission is a good thing. Gifts for all it is, I said, but um... Rule 1. Never be afraid to admit mistakes. Rule 7. Never hesitate to ask for help when you need it. Cat, I'm very sorry, but I wasn't paying close attention when you were pointing out which items were a good choice for specific crew members. Could you, uh, help me? Her face brightened. Of course, Hen. Let's do it. I worried that a sudden exuberance might cause an issue in the crowded shops. I needn't have worried. She navigated them as though she had an innate sense of where the crowd would part and where it would compact. Maybe it was one of those mythical human powers I'd heard about. I decided I'd ask her about it another time. She was so excited, I thought that her skeleton would jump out of its meat. Or, however the human saying goes, she'd found the perfect gloves for the engineer. A four-armed creature with six grasping digits on each manipulator that couldn't move in ways that would make one think that they didn't have an endoskeleton. 
After paying for the gloves, she bounced out of the shop to wait for me and the promenade. The shopkeeper totaled up my purchases and piled them into a disposable tote. Humans, huh? he asked. I just cracked my mandibles once and caught up to her and the promenade. We're done, right? I asked. She pointed at a small shop. One more to go, she said. The shop had human goods, mugs shaped for human manipulators, although the size of some of them made me think that some of the humans must be gargantuan. Shirts made for a body with two arms on the level with their head opening, and a host of trinkets, gadgets, and snacks that I didn't begin to comprehend. We carried our goods in, and she walked up to the side counter and waved over the human working there. We have a bunch of gift wrapping to do. No problem, the human male said. What's the occasion? We're declaring it Christmas. Nice! If you fill out those slips there and put each one of the items, we'll get them wrapped and tagged for you. She filled out the slips and laid out the gifts, fifteen in all, including the gloves for the engineer. How she could remember what gift went to which crew member was beyond me, but she did seem to have a sharp mind when she applied herself. Helping your com when these are ready, the human male said. Sure, Cat said. Let me give you my con... Contact me instead, I said. Most of these are my fault anyway. You sure, Cap? I'm sure, I said. Can you check with the courier office and see if there are any priority packages we can pick up for Sigri 7 station? It's not much, but the little extra cash doesn't hurt. Sure thing, Cap. When you're done, you can stow them all in my cabin. I don't mind, since it's just until the next jump. We'll celebrate while we're in the lane with nothing else to do. Navigator Katarina was not the only person capable of sneaky plans. I don't know what got me in the mood, but as soon as she left the shop, I caught the male's attention. What would be a good gift for an adult human female, class one navigator? I asked. Tell me some more about her, he said, and we'll figure out something together. I left the packages on the pile in her cabin, save one that I hid in my own cabin. Something made me want to surprise her with it. I wasn't sure whether it was a dominance thing or a predator thing, or something else entirely. True to her word, as soon as we jumped and were in the hyperlane, she set the small artificial tree on a table in the mess and piled the packages around it. She asked me to wait for everyone in the mess while she gathered them all. On the way, I snuck the package out of my cabin and hid it at the bottom of the pile of packages. Just in time, too, as the entire crew piled in in a rush. Cat entered wearing a hat like the one at the picture of the fat human and called out, Merry Christmas! We all returned the greeting, curious about what would happen next. She pulled out a tray of snacks out of the galley, along with the mild intoxicant drinks. The snacks and drinks were all different for each species-specific metabolism. Guessing by the sweet grubs and the prath juice she supplied myself and the Lord Master Mastille. They were all special occasion dishes and drinks. Now, she said, while we all sit around and get fat and happy, I'll play center and pass out the presents. With that, she began picking up the packages and delivering them to the person from the tag. After she delivered three or four, she stopped and looked at us. Well, go ahead and open them. Half the fun is discovering what you got. It soon turned into a frenzy of ripping open the brightly colored paper, being pleasantly surprised by the thoughtful gift, binding a tag, and thanking the one that provided the gift. Cat laughed and sang some silly songs in a human language that was peppy and bouncy. At Cat's suggestion, I had gotten engineer Griffin a multi-tool with a knife that seemed to fascinate her to no end. Even as she opened other gifts, she kept manipulating the tool in one hand, opening the tool, feeling it, then closing it. Cut-proof gloves, Griftlinken called out. Cat, how did you know? Cat put an arm around her and pointed to the bandages on three of her digits. I'm observant. 
It seemed as though everyone in the crew brought me something. Some were decorations for my admittedly sparsely furnished cabin. Some were treats for my home world, and one from Cat was the antique navigation calculator. It was beat up and of no use for modern navigation, but it was the same make and model as my brood mother's brood mother, who had used so many cycles ago. It looked just like the one that sat on the shelf in my brood mother's home. I turned it over, and there it was. The markings my ancestors had made on it when she received it brand new. Uh, how did you get this? I asked. Last time we were in Crowler Station, I called your broodmother to find out what would be a good gift for you. She said she wanted to pass it on, and had it couriered to one of the stations on our route. So, I guess it's really from your mom. My broodmother may have supplied it, but you were the one who thought to reach out and ask her. And, that was only a few ship days after you boarded. Well, you were willing to take a chance on a human, so I thought that I would get you something that showed I appreciated it. She went back to handing out gifts until the only one that was left was the one I'd placed there. There were murmurs and apologies from the crew for not getting her something, when she'd done so much for everyone. The general consensus was that they'd make it up to her next time. Really, don't worry guys, everyone here has been so helpful. I told you, you didn't have to get me anything, and I meant it. Giving gifts is the best part for me anyway. It was a great deal of conversation going while she looked at the package. I got the feeling that she'd be getting special treatment from most of the crew for a while. Finally, she opened the package, and her eyes began leaking liquid. I'd heard this was a bad thing. I... I'm sorry, I said. If that made you... No, she cut me off. There's nothing to apologize for. She lifted a tea mug with a built-in strainer out of the box and showed everyone the picture of her as a child with her parents on the mug. I guess the guy in the gift store helped you find Mike's socials, she said. But it's just so thoughtful of you. It's been ages, but I still miss them every day. And now they'll always be with me by my side on the bridge. Thank you so much. Fulkerton tested out the cut-proof gloves with a very sharp blade of the multi-tool, then turned to me. Captain, have you decided whether you'll extend Cat's contract, or are you still thinking it'll just be the one cycle? Rule 54. Good crew members are hard to find, so when you find one, sign them on for as long as you can. I think we can negotiate a long-term contract with the Union. If you are so inclined, Cat, I mean, this is my only first Christmas, and I wouldn't want to mess it up next cycle. End of story. 1944. Story number one. Yggdrasil. Written by I am the Hype TFS. There was a misconception amongst the members of the Galactic Union that humanity found quite shocking when they joined their ranks though they obviously didn't bring this to their attention. After all, why would you willingly give up such a huge advantage? It was understood that conflicts were carried out by ships in space and by ambassadors in embassies. Honestly, it was almost adorable to humanity that these advanced races, some of which had taken the stars long before they had even set foot on the moon, were so naive. Perhaps they had stood on equal footing with each other and hashed out disputes through battle, and open discussion for so long that they let other aspects of warsware fall to the wayside because it was simpler that way. Maybe it was because their prey species were too comfortable with each other, seeing each other as a kindred spirits, and the predators found it easier to intimidate and bully their way through the conflicts as their instincts dictated. But as has been proven time and time again, humanity was different. Hardened and tested against itself after centuries upon centuries of war and competition. 
There was no aspect of conflict thought too specialized or situational that they hadn't advanced its methods to the nth degree of their capabilities. More than any race in the Union, humanity understood that knowledge was power. And thus, the seed of Yggdrasil was planted. A man raised his arm, hailing a nondescript hovercab that looked like any of the dozens of others which had cruised down the street within the past few minutes. The cab slowed to a stop, and the man entered, the vehicle taking off as soon as the door was closed. The divider between the passenger and driver was raised, making communication between the two impossible, but the man made no attempt, instead reaching for a data pad that sat on the seat next to him. Route 8723, requesting access to Ratatoska. Authentication code being transmitted now. Intelligence Officer Berkeley leaned back in his seat of the mobile Intel outpost after sending the encrypted code that proved his identity as one of the roots of Yggdrasil. The designation given to all of the operatives the Terran Alliance had inserted into virtually every government in the Union, and especially those outside of it. Berkeley was a human, but many of the tens of thousands of operatives in the field weren't. Either due to the impossibility of placing humans in a hostile government hierarchy, or because they had found an existing member more than willing to feed humanity the secrets of their rotten administrations for nothing more but the satisfaction of eventually seeing it all falter and crumble beneath the weight of its own sins. Standby processing. My identity confirmed complete. Route 8723 acknowledged. Access granted. Connection secured. Please upload droplet. Berkeley chuckled as he did as the AI prompted. He didn't think that he'd ever get over the amusement he felt hearing the data packets uploaded by the operatives referred to as water droplets, but he also couldn't deny that it was an apt description. With each droplet that made its way from the roots to Victrisal back to Terra, the tree grew stronger and the branches of humanity's influence on the galactic stage spread further to bring its people to even greater heights. Of course, of course, the transmission of the data could never have been handled by humanity alone, since the sheer amount they would need to sift through at any given time was nigh incalculable. And so they had created AI to carry out the task, but a Tosca. Keeping with the ancient theme of Norse mythology that the head of Yggdrasil had seen fit to base the organization around, Ratatoska varied information up from the roots and orders down to Yggdrasil, emulating the fabled squirrel of Ald. Droplet upload completed. Provide verbal summary and recommendations, recipient and priority designation. These parameters would allow Ratatoska to categorize and order the data packets so that their recipients would be able to address the most pressing and valuable reports as soon as possible, while less urgent matters could be put off until there was time to look them over. We have confirmation of Tuscar government involvement in the Quintari slave trade. Payment trails discovered and disclosed in Droplet 540284.7c have led to a pirate organization whose name roughly translates to Black Knight in Tuscan. We have actionable intel on what is believed to be the main base of operations for the Black Knight on the southern border of the Quintari space, where an auction is set to be held in two standard Terran weeks from today. See Droplet for specifics. Berkeley paused his recording for a moment to not only catch his breath before continuing, but to steady his mind. In training for this line of work, burying his true feelings was fundamental, but it didn't eliminate them. He had seen the livestock, as the Tuscans called them, the conditions of absolute squalor these formerly free Quintari citizens now wallowed in, waiting to be passed from one master to another like cattle. 
If he could afford, he would weep for the loss of innocence he saw in the pictures he included in the upload. The young children who faced a lifetime of servitude and humiliation, but he had no such luxury. No one could know what he knew or how he felt, and the only thing that drove him forwards was the old rage roaring in his chest. The anticipation of the satisfaction it demanded to sate its hunger. Those poor Quintari didn't know it yet, but they weren't alone anymore. Humanity was on the way, and it would demand the blood of those responsible to stake the thirst for vengeance. My recommendation would be to privately contact Quintari Ambassador and set up a string operation with a joint military task force to be mustered in the allotted time as to catch all involved parties in the act. I should be able to block any potential information leaks to Tuscan officials until the operation can be carried out and recommend routes in suspected governments be ordered to do the same. Recipient, Odin, Priority, Alpha. Merkley placed the datapad back on the seat once the soft ping confirmed that the droplet had been successfully carried off to the Ratatuska and the cab came to a stop, letting him out several streets over from where it had picked him up. He turned to start making his way home for the evening when he noticed that the Tuscan around him all seemed to be paralyzed, utterly silent and unmoving with all their gazes lifted up towards the large hollow screen the city used to display important messages or events. It suddenly struck the human that he had heard the ambassador Svensson had called for an assembly today, and it must have begun when he was giving his report. He wondered what would have possibly made the general population stiffen in fear and mask, but he only needed to glance up at the screen for an answer. Prove me wrong. He only caught the last words of the ambassador's speech, but it didn't matter. The look in his eyes told Berkeley everything he needed to know. He felt a silent howl swell in his chest in response to the ambassador's look at the corners of his mouth lifted. In the sea of petrified faces, the beast smiled up at his kin. In an embassy office, a report slid across an empty desk. End of story. Story number two. The Predator's Concern, written by Fred Lowe. Beginning playback. Title screen, A Predator's Concern. Title screen fades, showing a human in a suit, stepping from behind a tree in a forest. Hello, I'm William Smith. You may remember me from such informational films such as When a Greeting Isn't a Greeting and Paradise Worlds, The Hidden Dangers. I'm a human, known as a Terran, but my kind is also known by another term, Predator. Unlike the other five Predators within the galaxy, such as the Scythe, who have retractable claws, the Selachi, with their rows of sharp teeth, we have no obvious weapons. Our weapons are our minds and endurance. Even without obvious weapons, we are still just as feared. As you may know, most species within the galaxy have evolved from prey species that manage to overcome or even completely destroy the predators on their planets to become the dominant species and continue their evolution to the current stages. As such, the prey instinct still remains often causing a fear response when they come across one of us predators. Do not worry. There are ways to help you navigate this galaxy as a predator amongst the prey. The biggest concern is we predators are known for being direct. We often maintain eye contact as we speak to others, and we often stand out at full height. Oftentimes we can diffuse a tense situation with the prey species just by blinking slowly, looking down and to the side and just lowering your head slightly. It may seem submissive, but most prey species seem to accept that as a simple lack of aggression. 
But be warned, lowering your head too low may trigger a fear response as they believe you're about to pounce. Physical contact during greetings seems to be universal amongst predator species. From the human handshake to the safe headbutt or the slatchy fin tap, predators have developed physical contact as a greeting in one form or another. Most prey species are afraid of physical contact upon first meeting, and some only use physical contact between those with direct relations, nest slash burrow mates, and so on. Best option is do not touch unless it's your greeting is offered first. Some individuals have learned greetings of most species and will attempt to use them as they can. If it's a small psychological trick that is often used by the lepers to relax the situation before it gets tense in the first place. I hope this short video allows you to traverse the galaxy with a little more ease. Join me next time for Death Worlds, not as bad as you think. Scene fades to black. End playback. End of story. 1945. Humans are sensory impaired. Written by Initial Macaron 4340. I clambered up into the light, dizzy from the landing. The alien sun tore into eyes, grown accustomed to darkness. I closed them. A tactical disadvantage, but I had no choice. I'd have to keep them closed until the gravity sickness subsided. The sweetness of nitrogen in the air mingled with the foul pungency of burnt carbon. I had to get away. My ears rang and my head swam as I tried to walk on. I perned back at the crash site. I couldn't believe what I voy. Though the heat of the thrusters made it difficult to make out, I could weigh just enough that the residual warmth of the laser fire on the hull, it must have been a direct hit. I perned at my... The ground was warm green in the heat of the afternoon sun. Wood, stone and concrete shone in various hues of white, red and yellow. Shadowed pools behind tall structures in cold Cerudian. But I could find none of my comrades. Crap! How far of course did I land? I switched on my comm unit. This is Captain Vathisk, 21st Drop Troops. Is anyone out there? No reply. I modulated my pits to vey further. The telltale warmth of living creatures flickered far off in the distance. But too far off to make out what they were. I checked if the unit was faulty. It was running fine. I transmitted my message again. No reply. Again. I started to wonder if I had landed behind enemy lines. Tension rose up into my body. But then I got an idea. I changed the frequency of my communicator to a different channel. This is Captain Vasseth of the Tenari Navy. Is anyone out there? I asked the Galactic Common. I held my breath. In the next few seconds passing intense silence. This is Lieutenant O'Brien, Terran Marine Corps. Hear you loud and clear, sir. What may I help you with? I sighed relief. Human territory. I'm in human territory. It turned out I landed miles away from the Tenari front lines. But by sheer luck, I had landed nearby a human Ford operating base. It was what the flickering warmth was. I told them that I would join their offense, in the hope that I might be able to meet up with my own people at the front. I was pleased when they accepted so readily. But now... Sitting in the wheel troop transport and looking at my new comrades, I couldn't help but feel uneasy. The humans were brave. There was no denying that. But they were also as severe as snowflakes, all of them. The entire species evolved without any ability for thermoception, beyond the rudimentary contact-based one. I perned at the Terran marine sitting beside me. They already perned alien enough 
together with a single pair of arms and a single opposable thumb on each hand. With a lack of thermoceptor pits, coupled with the eyes being situated where the pits should be, made them prone disturbingly uncanny. I remember during briefings, the scientists said that the humans' eyes were considerably more advanced than ours, that they saw an entire spectrum of colors completely invisible to us, and that they could perceive depth with just their eyes much better than we did with both eyes and pits. Squinting my pits, I tried to look at the marine with just my eyes. I turned my face from side to side, trying to ally the line of sight of each eye with the marine properly, one after the other. It was hard for my brain to sieve through all the thermoceptive data and isolate only the visual. It wasn't much, a dim monochrome outline, a shadow of what my pits boy. I tried imagining perceiving everything that way. I couldn't fathom it. No. I couldn't imagine having no sense of veer at all. For a Tanari, sight was only useful for movement perception. I learned in school that it was a trait that once helped our ancestors avoid being preyed upon while they were themselves hunting. By our standards, their whole military, their whole race was fit for disability benefits. And now I had to fight alongside them for who knows how long. Need something, General Grievous? Asked the Marine, his pitless face looking up at me. I grunted, ignoring him. I hoped that I would find my own before this army of the Avir got me killed. Initially, I had not a shred of doubt in my mind that the humans were at a fatal evolutionary disadvantage. I knew from briefings that they did not have the neural plexus in their limbs, so I expected them to lack some dexterity. I did not know just how much. Ambidexterity for them is an exception, not the norm, and even if they were the outlier who could use one hand as well as the other, they simply did not have the coordination to use each independently effectively enough in combat. They couldn't carry their weapons akimbo like we did. They'd have to concentrate on one hand or the other at any given time, drastically increasing response time. Add to that their lack of pits and the limited range of vision their eyes allowed, they couldn't have been effective even if they had been able to go akimbo because they could only see less than half of their surroundings at any given time. They'd have to have both weapons facing the same general direction to be any effective. And of course, their lack of secondary arms, those were essential to combat. Primary arms for firearms, secondary for melee. That was what was drilled into us in training. I carried a neutron blaster in each overarm and a monomolecular sword in each underarm, barely enough to fend myself against the Kraya with their larger, stronger frames and the three pairs of arms. The humans, on the other hand, carried a single oversized ballistic weapon in their arms, which they would have to disengage to effectively wield the tiny knife they carried as a melee weapon. And another thing. While their specialized eyes gave them some spatial awareness, they simply could not veer beyond opaque obstacles, which would explain their cowering combat stance. They could not see over and around walls, so they presumed their enemy would not as well. I enlightened them of this fallacy, commanding them to stand erect like warriors, but to little effect. They still went about cowering. All presumptions I had about human combat ineffectiveness were proven false the first time we made contact. We were about 10 kilometers away from the front when the troop carriers dropped us off. The area was under heavy bombardment, so it was risky for large vehicles to go any further. We skirted the main route, heading off to a tangent into the nearby woods hoping to avoid the artillery fire altogether and come out into the trenches at the other end of the woods. 
About two or three kilometers in, the Marine in the platoon I was attached to stopped dead in their tracks. Something's not right, they said the officer, leading the group. I perned over the area thoroughly, manipulating my pits to vey as far as I could. I found nothing. I turned towards the jumpy officer to snap at him. There, he said, raising his weapon. The five marines marching at the front beside me opened fire simultaneously. Instantaneously, a Kraya stalker decloaked where the marines were deflecting fire, covered in their own ichor. Then another, and another. They're flanking us, yelled a marine at the rear. I whipped around to vey four more Kraya decloaking. This time, they had the drop. I could evade that they were too near for the marines to be effective. I raised my own weapons and rushed in. By the end of the entire ordeal, ten Kraya and seven Terran marines lay dead. And I would have been lying if I said that I didn't owe my life to those seven marines. It seemed that Kraya cloaking technology had gotten better since the last conflict. They were now able to come to 50 meters near the vigilant Tanari and still go undetected. I thought perhaps the technology was not so well developed on the spectrum in the human saw, but the human stated that the stalkers were just as invisible to them as they were to me. But how? I asked. It seemed human eyes did have one similarity with our own. They were exceptionally adept at noticing things in motion, except they were better at it multiple times over. They were so good at it, in fact, that they could catch the distortion caused by the light refraction through the Kraya's cloaked body while they were in motion from over a hundred meters away. But even then, I was skeptical. I saw the human victory over the Kraya ambush party as a fluke. I was proven wrong again once we were reached the front. Our tacticians had projected that human lions would have been overrun in a matter of weeks. We had some idea of their accuracy with firearms, but we discounted that factor. After all, a human would need to hit a crayer at a minimum of ten times with one of their standard weapons to completely incapacitate them. A crayer would only need to hit a human once with one of their firearms or in close with a sword. Crayer had four times the number of firearms engaging at any one time per soldier and ran almost twice as fast as humans. We should not have discounted human accuracy. When we reached the front, I saw firsthand the range at which the humans operated their firearms. They were throwing ballistic projectiles downrange from almost a kilometer away. Kraya firearms and our own were only effective at a maximum of about a hundred meters. Our energy weapons were much more powerful than the humans, but thermal blooming made them ineffective at long ranges. When we discarded ballistic weapons for energy weapons long ago, this did not seem an issue, because while the thermoceptive fits showed us much more of what was within our range than human eyes, their weakness in depth perception and inability to focus on faraway points made long-range capability a moot point. Humans, on the other hand, never let ballistic weapons go. Their limited range of vision also gave them the ability to hone in with pinpoint accuracy on things of hundreds of meters away. Couple that with their excellent depth perception and exceptional ability to spot movement, and to that the telescopic lenses and gauss rifles that had a maximum range in kilometers, now... You had a creature that could hit a can of rations from half a kilometer away. What was the use of Kraya's power and combat prowess when they just couldn't even remotely get in range to attack? The war with the Kraya actually turned out to be an easier affair for the humans than the wars they had fought amongst themselves. All they had to do was dig a trench and avoid artillery fire and keep shooting. They didn't even have to stay in cover if there was no bombardment or airborne hostiles. Nobody 
would come in range fast enough to shoot back anyway. The folly is how we assessed human capability, laid in the fact that we used our own condition as a normative framework against which the humans were viewed. We adamantly saw them missing certain faculties, never realizing that they had never known those faculties to miss them. Their condition was their normal, and they adapted to their environment as a complete, able species with the faculties they did evolve with. Tenari words describing aspects of thermoception alongside their eyesight analogues in English. Number one, pern, look. Two, ve voi vot, to see, saw, and seen. Three, via, blind. Four, via, sight. End of story. I would quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and Patreons. Casper Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Lord Azrakal, It's Difficult to Pronounce, Dragzoon WRE, Holly's Sister, Arcadian. Thank you very much.